This episode contains major plot spoilers for M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening from 2008, Sleepaway Camp from 1983, and of course, all three of The Thing movies. Hello, this is James Patton calling from Hillsboro, Texas, and you're listening to the Horror Movie Podcast, where we are dead serious about horror. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a weekly show that's released every Friday, and this is episode 54. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And as for my co-hosts, who goes there? Dave, Dr. Schockbecker, just outside Philadelphia, PA. Wolf, man, Josh, what's up, Jason? Hey, or a.k.a. Space Wolf. That's your sci-fi horror name, right? Yeah, I'm I'm a sci-fi podcast, yeah. I I dig that. It's a whole sci-fi thing happening over there. That's pretty, when I first heard them call you Space Wolf, I I just, I died laughing. That is hilarious. (laughs) That's like the coolest thing ever. Anyways, yeah, thank you. It it was actually it was inspired by a local artist. I wish I could give the artist's name, but they they painted a beautiful mural of a wolf in an astronaut suit that I uh, with a cape that I use on the on the Facebook page, and so I was like, "Oh, space wolf, perfect." Oh man, that's good stuff. All right, well, tonight we have a serious franchise to discuss, and so we've brought serious guests. Um, they are hosts of one of my all-time favorite podcasts, actually, and that's I'm not even kidding about that. Wouldn't you agree with that, Doctor Shock? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I recently listened to um, I believe it's episode three, wasn't it, or the Chappie? Mm-hmm. Was that episode three or four? Yeah, I think it was three. Episode three. three. Mm-hmm. It was three. Yeah. And uh, it was tremendous. I mean, the level of discussion on there, uh, the review of the movie Chappie, plus the discussion afterwards of more human than human and, and movies that had um, had that theme. Uh, it, it was absolutely tremendous. And it's, it's actually causing me to go back and take another look at AI. Now, I've seen AI several times, and I even did buy it on Blu-ray. However, uh, the whole time I was thinking, yeah, I wasn't really, there was just something about that movie I didn't like. Well, I found out listening to the podcast, what it was is I was just not reacting very well to the treatment that, um, uh, what is it, Osman's character uh, was getting. I mean, you know, it really is a very heartbreaking story when, when you step back and look at it. And I think I might yeah. have been reacting more on that level than I was to anything with the movie itself. And uh, it's forcing me to go back and, and take another look at it. I, it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, but um, I, so I'm, I've sort of moved that up in, in the queue, and it's mostly because of, of the discussion during, uh, you know, during that specific episode. So... Yeah, if you've not listened to the Sci-Fi Podcast, definitely check it out. And even if you're just sort of a fringe fan of Sci-Fi, I think the show will make you uh, an even stronger fan of it. And if you're religious out there, if you haven't listened to the Sci-Fi Podcast, then you're going to hell. (laughs) 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 So anyway, let's introduce these guests here. Uh, First, we have, I'm just going by seniority here. 
we we have the co-host of the sci-fi podcast he goes by many names kill bill kill aka solo aka william rowan jr welcome sir hey guys great to be here (laughs) (laughs) thank you and then and then good buddy of william rowan jr's or kill bill kill is the host of the sci-fi podcast we welcome metroid to be fair, I am two months older than William, so I am seniority in that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Before we get started with this epic show, I want you to go to the website at horrormoviepodcast.com and in the show notes here for episode 54, I'll have this linked. I put up a blog post titled, Is Your City Represented on the HMP T-Shirts? We're getting ready to order the shirts I've got the listeners' cities on the back or your country of origin. So look at that list that I've compiled there and let me know if I've forgotten your city. So please leave a comment, tell me your city, and also tell me the size of the shirt that you would want to order. Thank you. All right. Well, guys, tonight we're going to be doing a versus episode it's also a franchise review, but really it's more of a versus episode. And I like to kick it over to the Wolfman here to talk about what what we mean by that. Well, in episode 39, we did our first versus episode. We were talking about a few movies that were so similar um, that it was hard to not think of one without thinking of the other. And so we thought, well, let's just review all of these movies and we'll kind of compare them to one another as the as the kind of structure of our review. And I thought that was a lot of fun. And um, then as we were discussing future themes we wanted to do and future franchise reviews, a lot of movies came up that maybe didn't warrant an entire franchise review. And Dave had the idea of maybe like comparing the original Wolfman to the 2010 Wolfman or original Frankenstein to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So we thought let's, let's extend this idea of the versus episode that we did in episode 39. And this, I thought this would be a great way to spice up a lot of these Frankensteinian episodes as well, but we're going to, this one won't be that because there are three films that are going to get feature reviews, but um, I'm, I'm very excited to be talking about one of my all time favorite movies is John Carpenter's the thing from 1982 We'll also be discussing and comparing it and contrasting it with the film that came before it, 1951's The Thing from Another World, and then the prequel slash remake, The Thing from 2011. Yes, yes, uh-huh. thank you. I'm really excited about that. And because these are uh, sci-fi horror, of course, we brought in the big guns from the sci-fi podcast. So that makes sense. Makes sense to me. Now, That's right. For, yeah. pe- for people who have not seen the Thing movies, okay, I just want you to know up front, we will be covering spoilers, so from here on, uh, you are not safe if you haven't seen them. But just as a preface, okay, there was a science yeah. fiction novella published circa 1938. It was written by John That's Campbell. Correct. Yes, John Campbell, but it was under the pen name of Don Stewart, which I'm... I don't know why he went with that. But anyway, it was called Who Goes There? (laughs) I'm just kidding. And this story was adapted in 1951, somewhat loosely, into our first film, which is called The Thing from Another World. And that was the first filmed version of it, at least that I know of. Is that correct, Doc? Uh, Yeah, I I believe so. Okay. And then in 1982, John Carpenter, he released his own adaptation of Who Goes There, which actually... 
seemed to follow a little more closely, and it was titled The Thing, or John Carpenter's The Thing. And so the 1982 movie isn't a sequel to the 1951 film, just to be clear. It's technically not even a remake because it's more reimagined from the original source yeah. material. Uh-huh. Okay, good. And then Yes and no. I mean, I think it I think it takes as much from the and we'll talk about this, I guess. I don't mean to interrupt. We t- sure. it takes as much from the 1951 film as it does from the novella in my opinion. It, it's kind of like an interesting merging of those two, you know, yeah. source materials. I totally agree with that. Well, now that we're on it, uh, in the commentary of John Carpenter's The Thing, he actually says, and I'm only saying this at this this way because I haven't read um the you know the short story but he said that John Carpenter said that he actually wanted to make a film that was closer to the short story because of limitations in the 50s they changed a lot of things that they couldn't do right. or there were themes uh, that they yeah. couldn't do so right yeah I, th- I thought but I got they, the but they borrowed closer to the short story John Carpenter mm-hmm. yeah I think it's about half and half. I mean, I think that's definitely true about some of the thematic material. But if you look at, I mean, even from the opening title shot, they're borrowing heavily from the movie. I mean, Howard Hawks is a was a hero of John Carpenter's, and it's clear to me that they uh, they borrowed a lot of visual elements from the original. Yes, but the only thing I want to say there is that the shape shifting element, or the you know being able to disguise. That is one of the major, major, uh, I guess, theme or whatever. And so that was something like William was saying, the limitations, they weren't really able to pull that off. So they did the, the plant thing, which we'll talk about. But um, so I think that that's, that's the big thing that's missing. <laughs> well, I think it, I, I would consider it more than half, but I know we're apples and oranges on this or something. But just because well, I can, I'll, I'll lay out the evidence if you want, but we'll get to that. Let's finish the introduction. Uh, first. Okay. Yeah, we're already <laughs> debating it. But anyway, so the newest release from October 2011 is also titled The Thing, and it's technically a prequel to the 1982 John Carpenter movie, though uh, one could argue it's also, at the same time, a remake or a reboot of the Carpenter's film. Definitely. It's kind of interesting. Uh So anyway, you can see in that way just some of the ways that these are related and I, and why they're maybe more interesting in a versus episode as opposed to a franchise review as we've done with Halloween and Friday the 13th. Right. Yes, exactly. So that sounds great. And, and what I like to do, and I don't know if you, maybe if you guys have objections to this, this is fine. I, I always like to go in story order, but, or do you want to go in year of release order? I think year of release order. Yeah. I think year of release would, that would, that would be my choice as well. Okay, then that's what we'll do. Year of release order. But at this point, we'll move into our feature review of The Thing from Another World. The Thing from Another World. This is the spot where it was first seen. And these are the first people who saw The Thing. How did it get here? Where did it come from? What is it? 1951, The Thing from Another Planet, directed by Christ, Christian Nyby. Sorry about that. And it's, I mean, it starts off kind of the whole thing, if I can use that pun, which I'm sure will come up often. 
United States Air Force, um, they're dispatched to, uh, uh, I guess it's the North Pole, um, just outside of Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, they find something buried in the ice. It turns out that it's a spaceship and they get, or a flying saucer, I guess, kind of more of the times. And they get, uh, they find that there's also an alien body not far from that. They bring it back to base camp and lo and behold, trouble ensues. <laughs> yes. Now, in the beginning there, does this have alternate titles as in the thing from another planet? Is it also called oh, that as well as sorry. the thing from another world? I I grew up uh, with a VHS copy that was the thing from another planet. It's actually the thing from another world. Um, and I, I maybe even have that still. But mine mine awesome. always said the thing from another planet. And uh, I the titles, I say, I think believe or I believe they say the thing from another world. Yeah. So well, I've I think honestly that's the technical term. I've seen that the thing from another planet. That's why I mean I have so much trouble getting this dumb title right because I've seen both as well, and I, so I've I, I wanted to ask you about that. Thanks for clearing that up because I thought I was going crazy. Well, it I, oddly enough, it it can mean two different things. I'm kind of a snob in that way a little bit. I think that as a writer and Jason, I know you write a lot too. So, Mm -hmm. um, as a writer world can mean so many things. Planet typically means, uh, you know, a celestial body that is like earth or whatever else, a planet itself. Whereas world can be, uh, kind of a metaphysical or a, uh, metaphor for something or kind of, uh, an allusion to a person's state or, or a different viewpoint. So I actually think, think from another planet works better, or think from another world can have a different connotation. That's neither here nor there, but I actually find that pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Me too. Josh, is this where you were going to say that trivia, or is this not a good place for that? Sure. You want me to say some trivia? <laughs> yeah, I, got, just, I got some trivia for you. Just Josh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that. so the film is, you know, credited to Christian Nyby as the director. Um, a lot of people believe that Howard Hawks was actually the director on this. You know, it maybe mirrors the Steven Spielberg uh, directing in quotes of Poltergeist. Um, uh-huh. Howard Hawks was the producer of this film, but it's widely, um, he's widely credited as the director mm-hmm. of the thing from another world. And he was definitely a producer on it as well. So, so yes, yeah. yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and why do we care about Howard Hawks, Dr. Shock? Oh, Howard Hawks. He was a, well, aside from being a prolific director, he was one who worked in a wide variety of, of genres. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, with this one, obviously it was horror. He, he did Westerns. Um, he did screwball comedies. Um, what was it? His girl Friday was, was, was Howard Hawks. Um, Rio, Rio Bravo, which is one of the, the greatest Westerns ever made. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and he went on to influence, uh, not only like the, 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 the French writers who became directors, you know, like the, the Truffauts and Godard, who they consider themselves, what, what do they call it? I think like Haw- Hitchcock, Hitchcock-Hawksians or something, because Hitchcock and <laughs> Hawks were the two directors that they focused on. But he was also a big influence on someone like Quentin Tarantino, who has tried to, yeah. in a way, mirror his desire to work in different genres. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. So this guy is significant if people and Hawks. Yeah, and and also Christian Nyby. This was this would have been his directorial debut, whereas Howard Hawks was already a very famous director and producer by this stage in his career. So mm-hmm. it may have been seen as maybe a step down for him to do a you know, low budget sci fi thriller as opposed to you know this guy who was kind of a, a new director. So there may have been a reasoning behind that as well. Yeah. Now, Interesting, real quick, if you don't mind. So mm-hmm. we, we're covering, right now we've got an episode coming out on the Sci-Fi Podcast that covers the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and and the kind of the point to this is to review Age of Ultron, which just came out. And uh, they bring up a reference to My Girl Friday on that. Uh, and actually important, a very important reference, which I think is kind of cool. So a lot of people might miss that, but I'm a big fan of Howard Hawks, Big Sleep, Rio Bravo. I mean... That's the two reasons I think he's important, really. Right. But uh, I just thought that was yeah. kind of funny you brought that up, Dave, because I was thinking, who directed that? I could not remember, and there it is. Yeah. Uh, and that pacing, yep. um, Matt Troy, that pacing of the dialogue in this is very reminiscent of his uh, Girl Friday. I mean, it, it's so, like in this film, especially when you get the that irritating newspaper man that's in this film. I mean, it's just really fast-paced dialogue. It's snappy, you know. It's interesting to me. Right. Yeah. Now, did you guys watch the black and white version or the colorized version? Because this does have a colorized version. I watched the black and white. Well done. I didn't know I've seen both. Colorized. Yeah, I didn't realize it was a colorized version either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude, Josh, what do you... The like, colorized versions... Mm-hmm. I-, I love the colorized version because... You know, it's interesting because the sets in this movie are pretty similar to the 1982 version of the thing. And when it's colorized, you really notice it a lot more because you're like, oh, wow, this almost looks like the same set in a lot of ways, you know. But wow, that, that's the main reason I like it. Also because the monster's green, so it kind of has a Frankensteinian quality to it as well. <laughs> I grew up watching the black and white version on that VHS tape, but I decided for the first time to watch the colorized version and... I'm not a big fan of colorization. Uh, Some like a hot is kind of one of those where I'm like, uh, I don't go for this. I prefer my black and white movies to be black and white. But I actually really thought they did a great job with this one. I I watched it for the first time colorized, and I would happily watch it that way again. Hmm. I I, I remember a um, um, the um, well, I guess he would have been a professor that I had back in uh, in college. In, in my media class telling me that, and this was back in 91, telling me that everybody who's up in arms about Ted Turner colorizing these movies, those were actually the first, I guess, the uh, he was preserving them at the same time, you know, sort of remastering and preserving them at the same time. Mm. So this, this, uh, this instructor of mine was really like praising Ted Turner for doing this. He says, people think he's like, oh, he's, he's ruining these classic movies. He's putting color in them. But he was actually taking steps to preserve the movie at the same time while doing that. And um, so, yeah, he was uh, personally still I have a hard time watching colorized versions of certain things. It like it won't bother me if I see a colorized Three Stooges short. But there's something about movies like, you know, the thing from another world where I just still prefer the black and white. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Yeah. William Rowan Jr. Do you have a so you you mainly watch the black and white version, you said. Yeah, I didn't know there was a color version. Would you be willing to watch it? Yeah, yeah, okay. I have no problem. Yeah, I just wonder that ticks some people do off. I, like, do I, I'm, I'm going to take a stance. 
<laughs> Bill just, does not like color. <laughs> I'm just saying because Roger Ebert, he he got ferociously angry about colorized versions. So oh oh, so some some people, people do take a stance. <laughs> yes, they do. That's serious business. Okay. But I I guess wouldn't the issue really be if it alters the movie, if if the intent of the movie changes, or if stylistically it changes? I I guess maybe that's some of my na- some of me being naive, naivete or whatever. I don't use that word very often. Um, but to me, it seems <laughs> like as long as the, clearly, I thank you. As as long as the movie doesn't suffer from colorizing it, I don't see what the big deal is. I and maybe it's because I'm not a purist, but. I you know they, they were shot in black and white largely due to limitations of color I think at, at well, least originally a classic I, I, noir film might be different than you know yeah, sure, I, sure. I, another film that doesn't there. depend on the black I I did watch plan the Plan Nine from Outer Space colorization too okay they had released that on the uh, on the on the Blu-ray of uh, Plan Nine from Outer Space and did so, it interfere with the artistic in, artistic integrity of that film <laughs> oh no not not at all. Not at all. As, as a matter of fact, oh, I, yeah. I think it, it enhanced it a little. Bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, for the list, I, look, I, I I love black and white film. I just I was just saying it, it, the original still exists, so they didn't destroy it when they made the colorized version. Right. So That's it's right. just a fun way to watch it sometimes. And I guess one last note on this for the listeners, in case you weren't aware of this, that it's kind of interesting when when filmmakers shoot a black and white film, a lot of times. Uh, the costumes and and the colors that are existent in the real world set, especially costumes, those are actually awful and they clash sometimes because they don't necessarily match because what they're doing is they're intending, they, they select those clothes for how they look in black and white, not for how they look in color. So if you were to give them their true color, sometimes there were some pretty wacky clashing colors. That's kind of interesting to me. Anyways, so... Very cool. 1950s sci-fi, which in this blends into horror as well. Now, let's talk about the the 1950s. And and every time I talk about the 50s, I always like to bring this up. But let's look at it. So what was going on in the 1950s era with sci-fi, you guys? Drugs, sex, rock and roll. <laughs> Wait, what What decade are we? Elvis Presley. Right, exactly. That was the wrong decade. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was the, the time of, um, okay, we have the nuclear the aftermath age. Aftermath of World War II. Yeah, aftermath yeah. of World War II. The nuclear age is here. There's a lot of paranoia, especially with invaders you know that's why we get uh so many of these like body snatcher type themes which is actually what we have with the the newer thing movies but so there's that mccarthyism Uh the red scare all that jazz and the promise of space the promise that we would go to the moon one day Mm -hmm. the russians getting there getting up into space a little earlier than us a huge amount of science fiction in the 50s uh Everything you said is absolutely correct, but it's also the idea that space is so foreign and so different that the only way to depict it for the everyday person is to show how zany it can be on film. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and uh, a theme that's really common in science fiction, as well as horror for that matter, is, you know, man going too far, man doing things that he, he, he shouldn't be doing and altering, you know, I guess the laws of God are, are overstepping bounds. And so when it comes to traveling in the space or creating weapons that can blow up entire cities, 
you know, there, there began to be a paranoia. And so, you know, that's cool that a film like this came up. And in fact, uh, one of my favorite things about these three movies is the fact that, you know, this came during that nuclear age scare. And then we get the 1982 thing. This theme is back in the consciousness of um, our, our worries as a culture during the, you know, when we were worried about the Cold War and about Russia sending nukes over here and blowing us up and vice versa. And then we get the 2011 thing remake once again when we have, you know, the 9-11 age upon us and a new world of terror and terrorist cells. So there's always this, it seems like this film comes back again when we're scared to death of invaders from within that we can't really uh, see coming. That's kind of an awesome point. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Thanks. I agree. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. This movie starts out in Alaska and they go to the North Pole as opposed to the other films where they go to Antarctica. But, um, you know, this film being set in, at the military base in Anchorage is interesting because that's also where, uh, you know, Alaskans were. Um, really important during both World War II and the Cold War, uh, spotting enemy submarines and ships. And so that's also kind of an interesting analog there as well that, um, you know, Alaskans spotting Russian subs off the coast of Alaska or, or, uh, you know, uh, planes during World War II and stuff like that. So, you know. It struck me as just another interesting time. It neat. confused me so bad because I, even though I knew differently, I always assumed that John Carpenter's The Thing took place in the North Pole because that's what I was familiar with as a kid. By the time I was old enough to watch Carpenter's version, uh, I'd watched the other one several times. And so for me, even though I know differently now, every time I watch it, I still picture that it's the North Pole. It's, it's weird. Um, and uh, the funny thing is, is that it's, so many of H.P. Lovecraft's stories seem to deal with uh, extremes. And, and one of the greatest uh, of his, I think, is uh, at the Mountains of Madness, right? Where uh, yep. it takes place in the Antarctica, which is a lot more closely tied to John Carpenter's version. And even elements of that movie bring in that Lovecraftian horror. And uh, so that's going to help me remember <laughs> That it takes place south and not north, and that we don't see Santa, which I would expect. <laughs> well, and um, yeah, not to mention that there's no there's no landmass at the North Pole, which yeah, I, is funny. Uh, like that's right. Like it's true. Antarctica makes a lot more sense for the following films because the United States actually has bases in, in Antarctica, <laughs> and scientists are there to actually be there doing research. Whereas the idea of uh, yeah, them having this base up there on the ice doesn't seem very probable. Yeah, exactly. That's very funny to me. Spoiler alert for Santa Claus, everybody, but yeah. <laughs> well, he shows up in the end. <laughs> yes, that's true. Now, as far as the filming of this, now, Dr. Shock, you could help us with this, I think. And I mean, probably all you guys know this, but I'm not sure. I know that D.W. Griffith, you know, he did... Well, even um, even earlier than that, I, I mean, he he was a big director who brought in a lot of the film grammar and the film language that we're familiar with, and even the Great Train Robbery from like 1903. I mean, we're we're going way back here uh-huh. in some serious cinema history. Um, even that one has a close up in it. Okay, so 
But as far as when close-ups became common, like what decade, Dr. Shock, would you say that we got close-ups commonly? Oh, boy. I mean, you were you were getting some close-ups, um, well, in the in the 1920s. You know, uh, Eisenstein used quite a few of them in Battleship Potemkin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to to great effect. I mean, he was he he's another one who really sort of changed the language of film with with montage and and editing and whatnot. Um, I I, I don't know that. I it really just depends on like on the filmmaker because then you get somebody like Howard Hawks who rarely used close-ups i think i saw somewhere where rio bravo had something like maybe four or five close-ups in the entire movie yeah Yeah. now you you guys just reviewed nosferatu right or did you did the uh i guess shadow of the vampire right not that long ago Mm -hmm. we we had discussed it yes yeah Yeah, and if i'm not mistaken there's a couple of close-ups in that in the original is there not i thought what i was for some reason i was thinking there were because that's another movie that popped into my head um I'm and that's, I mean, that's in the 20s. Scene. That's, that's in 1922. Yeah. And I think, um, what, what was Battleship Potemkin was 25. So, yeah. uh, but yeah, even going, even going back with, like you were saying, D.W. Griffith, he, he would, he would use close-ups and, um, oh boy, you know, he, he made, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm blanking on specific scenes, but he did a lot of the, he did like cross cutting, um, yes. Yes. you know, a lot of things for that, that sort of. Like you said, it sort of introduced it to to filmmaking, but exactly, um, yeah. I mean, so I I bring it up because it, it's interesting. I mean, we, we and I think we've talked about this before, Josh, and maybe you were the one that even pointed it out to me, Josh. So props to Josh for this. But there are not. I mean, you really don't see close ups in this movie. I mean, they're like what do they call that? Like one third shots. I mean, that's medium kind of shots. Medium, or, yeah, yeah. Th- things like yeah, or or even like like wide shots but again that was sort of hawks's hawks's style which really does sort of lend back to who really directed this movie and and see if we're well, going and, and it really it's a style that really lends itself to comedy but maybe not so much tension which is right yeah because right. that's what exactly what i was gonna say next is that if we're doing you know a versus episode here and we are like you know we're not super close to the monster we as an audience have a distance from the monster in the film whereas you know the thing 1982 puts you right up in its mix you know and it's, it's very scary that yeah. way but yes. you know one thing i really like about different styles of monster movies is there's the ones there's many different kinds but out of these two verses there's the kind where the monster's slowly coming towards you and your anxiety is building and you're freaking out like it's closer, it's a little closer, it's a little closer. Or the other style where, you know, it's more of like a, it's right in your face surprise. And you're just like, ah, give me away, give me away, give me away. And then both of them have suspense. And, I'm, and if they're used correctly, I think are very, you know, can be very freaky, can be very suspenseful, you know. Mm-hmm. Just building on William's point, I thought that uh, both films utilize, sorry, the 1982 film utilizes both forms of that very well. Mm-hmm. Green. You know, with a movie like, especially with, with uh, the one from the 50s, what you're getting is atmosphere is crucial to the movie. So with Carpenter, you get a little bit more of the the effects that are so effective. Sorry to use that pun, but it's really, it's pretty cool. You need some closer, tighter shots on that. But in uh, the original, what you've got is the environment is just as, 
alien as anything else. Mm-hmm. So to have those wider shots or to pull back a little bit gives the sense of isolation, gives the sense of what's in the corners, what could be hiding, nice. who's in the room, who's not in the room. So I think it was used very well, whereas it, you know, it may not have been quite as uh, suspenseful or quite as exciting if they would have cut some of that out. Uh, it's just a thought. Oh, I like it. I hadn't thought of it that way. So, yeah, I give. It's an interesting point. You know, in the 82 version does something along those lines, although it uses a lot of close-ups. What's interesting about that film is it's shot in anamorphic widescreen. And so, and that's a format, you know, that's typically, it's created for the wide shot. And what they did is they used something like that for to tell a confined story, which is totally the opposite of what you would kind of think. And so what they do is the framings in the 1982 version are so interesting because he's really utilizing the background. And so and so what that movie is doing is it's always creating kind of this negative space. It's like, ooh, something could be behind him. Mm-hmm. There are all these great shots of Kurt Russell with an open door behind him. And you're always kind of wondering, or, or darkness behind him, or a window behind him. And you're always thinking, what? yes. what's going to come on this side of the frame? You don't even notice it. It's, it's not something that's conscious. It's after you've watched yeah. it a few times, you notice, oh, there was an open door. Oh, there was darkness. Oh, there was someone kind of coming in slowly. But really what it is, it's that subconscious that where you don't know the door is open, but you know it's open, which in my opinion makes it way scarier. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the beauty of that monster, especially in the 82 version, is the fact that even if they show a regular human being, you know, a peril is there. You're like, well, is that person... The monster, you know, I love that. Uh, how about? It's a huge improvement to the horror element, or the the you don't know who to trust. That's no doubt, vision. it's a whole. Ele- it's a next level of suspense when it can be anyone, especially someone that you have. There's even a line that says like, "I've known him, you know, my whole for thirty years," and he just saw him as a half monster, and he can't accept it. Still, he's, he's having a hard time processing mm-hmm. what's happening, and you're like. That is the core of how scary this could be, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I believe that's Wolfman Josh's. That's one of his scariest things, right? Josh is this whole body snatcher concept, right? It's my absolute favorite subgenre in horror. And this movie is a big part of the reason why. But um, so is the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But I just love the idea that anyone around you could be the enemy. And like you say, that's very um, prescient in the Cold War and in the age of terrorism. So it's it's super effective drawing on our real-life fears um, and also just being a cool monster idea. Yeah. Josh, I got a question for you, if it's okay. Um, it, I like your how you bring up the Cold War, by the way, because I've been watching The Americans, which is such a good show. And it is that element of who's a spy, who's not. And I'd never really thought about that in, in this regard, so I, I appreciate you bringing that up. But did you do you consider the original to even be a body snatcher movie at all? The original, uh, the thing from another world? That's right. No, they, they totally took that out of the out of the movie. And I think um, you know, that was just an element from the book that they chose not to Pursue for whatever reason, you know, we, we've talked about maybe it was budgetary reasons. I don't know. Maybe it was just not, not in vogue at that era. But, some, you know, that's definitely something that I feel like John Carpenter really was interested in pursuing and really nailed uh, in his yeah. adaptation. However, 
Okay, go ahead. Sorry. I was ahead. just going to say in my notes, it's the very first thing I put is like of, of these three films, one of them isn't even in the same subgenre to some extent. They're all partially science fiction. They're all partially horror. But two of the yeah. three are, are body snatcher tales. And one of them has none of that. That well, an invasion of the the famous invasion of the body snatchers doesn't come out until five years after thing from another world. So it really, I don't know. I just don't think it was a part of the cultural zeitgeist. Well, and, and what you guys are saying is exactly right. Like technically, the body snatcher thing, but there is still that um, you were on my team now. You're not because they divide up the military and the scientists. Where the Doctor Arthur Carrington character, right? Um, he, you know, he he wants to study this monster. He doesn't want to harm it. He wants to reach out. He wants to connect with it. And so there does become this fissure within this little division within their group, where you know their interests are a lot different. So no, it's not a body snatcher movie, but this monster is still able to get between them in this first film. That's a good. Point. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Now, speaking of um the monster here, one thing they do. Like one of the greatest scenes in this 1951 film is when we see the monster briefly out there fighting the sled dogs, and yeah, it, it seems. I mean, you know, it's not. I mean, I hope the listeners <laughs> take in the context, like when this was made and everything. I mean, it, it's going to be very tame for people who are looking for something more hardcore or fast paced, for that matter. But he, he throws the sled dogs around, and I. You know, but he's in the shape of a man. And I just wonder if they, you know, how we have this association with dogs that they're man's best friend, so to speak, and woman's. But anyway, I wonder if <laughs> they, they put that what? in there, put that in there to establish that even though this thing looks like a man, it's not a man because, you know, it's, it's fighting with these dogs and the dogs being thrown around i i just wonder that well it's a great it's a great tell like a poker tell or a you know a re, it's like okay so how do we know you know i guess it's a good setup they don't really pay it off again mm-hmm. i guess it does have a sort of it does there's a dog that's involved later but since it doesn't really show what's going on there or it doesn't show that that's like they're standing together and then all of a sudden the dog growls at one of them that would have been a great payoff for this but I think the setup is really good. Yeah, you know, our protectors see and smell things that we cannot, and therefore we have to rely on them to help us identify, you know, the traitor or the the monster or the thing that is not welcome. And I think that's a great storytelling device, mm-hmm. actually. It's yeah. really good. It's which, very strong. Which makes the 82 version, opening with that dog, super cool because man's best friend there is not at all man's best friend. Oh, yeah. He's a monster. Well, and to kind of go back on what you guys have said in the past, it is a serious horror movie, is it not? Because it, <laughs> yes. there's a dog that is treated with uh, a little bit less than respect. Right. Um, <laughs> and if a dog or a child is treated like that, then it, it can be considered a serious horror movie. Mm-hmm. The thing that I think is fascinating is at that time, maybe more than any other time in, in history, dogs were kind of becoming – almost like a pop culture household pet. Uh, If you look at a lot of the artwork at the time, there's a lot of dogs featured prominently with their masters in like a study or in situations like that. And you see less of it earlier and a little bit less of it later on. And I think that there is that kind of 
50s vibe where the dog is part of the family. And to see these dogs who, I think William nailed it, was saying like protectors and, and those that serve us and they, they seek to make our lives better, to see them uh, attacked in any way, it's almost worse sometimes than to see a human being attacked. Mm. So I thought that that was one of the more shocking parts of this movie to me, really. And, and it's not like it was brutal or anything, but it means you can take it a little more seriously. I think you guys nailed it when you originally brought up that point some uh, episodes back. One of my favorite parts, I just, I guess I'm just going to just start randomly riffing. Um, I loved the whole dialogue. The dialogue is hit or miss for me, and it's, it's, it's not bad. It's just they're kind of riffing or bantering in a way that I'm not used to. I'll give an example. I, like, there's a situation where they, they just ran into the thing, and, you know, like one of the, one, the soldiers, one of like the, the help, like the under soldiers, kind of like, that was a close one, Cap. You know, it's just like shooting Nazis in the face back in the war, right? And the captain's just like, that's right, Hank. That reminds me. If we get out of this alive, you still owe me that soda. <laughs> and they're just like walking away after running right yeah, into the thing. Right. And I'm just kind of like, whoa, hello. Like, they're they're like reacting totally strange to me. Yeah, the the, the type of reactions that, that only did happen in the movies back then. I mean, if you're... You come face to face with a killer. You're you're not going to just all of a sudden leap into witty banter a couple seconds later. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, there's this part where the guy was talking about like those eyes, and his dialogue was was not funny or weird. I mean, it's dead serious and and eerie and chilling and pun intended. I mean, he's kind of going off like those eyes. I I just can't. It looks like they're there's they can see, and it's freaking me out. And I remember feeling, dude, this is. I would hate to be in that room. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a good it's a good setup. And I'm the only thing it doesn't pay off at all. Because and I think it's because there were no eyes to show, or the eyes that they would show would just be a human guys in a in a mask. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just assuming they never show his eyes, but they should have. I wish it. I wish they could have. You know. It's funny you bring that up because to me the whole issue I had with the movie. Um, which I know it's it's reminiscent of kind of classic and, and some of the time, but it is that the scene I think you're talking about too, where it's like, hey, anyone want to go get a root beer? You know, it's like that's the scariest yeah. situation I can imagine. It's kind of the haunted house scenario where it's like, who's here with us? We can't get out. I mean, infinite number of films have borrowed from this. Like Alien does a pretty successful version of this, you know, where who knows how to stop this thing and no one can get away from it. And yet these guys are chummy and laughing, and maybe it's nothing more than a sign of the times that these films are made. But Carpenter does such a good job of – I mean if, if nobody else does anything in the history of cinema, in my opinion, that captures the essence or the, the mood of a movie, it's um, – and I almost called him Jack Ryan for some weird reason, but, uh, <laughs> but Kurt Russell, he's so intense. Like you can't even get this guy to crack a smile to – Think about any kind of levity of the situation. It's terror. And I really could have used that in the original. Um, you know, I think Dr. Carrington's probably the most hammy character in the movies. Got that classic old school actor uh, vibe going on. But mm-hmm. the, there's just nothing in that that suggests these guys are afraid of the situation they're in. And I, I can say you could put some of the toughest football players or whatever in the whole world in a room like this. 
And they're going to be crapping their pants. They're going to be very afraid. Yeah. And these guys are soldiers. They've largely. made I mean, contact with alien life. Right? <laughs> right For the first right. time ever. They comment on <laughs> like, it being the first right. time Never ever. Remember, we've just made – yeah. It's it's a real failure, the film. I think it's just a product of the time, though, I think. And honestly, it was maybe a problem with having Howard Hawks involved because he is this guy that loves his witty banter and his comedies – and it just wasn't the right mode for this film, um, at least by today's standards. Probably at the time it came out, this was the right tone for people. That was what was popular. And, and um, you know, like a decade later, we did something like, well, you don't have a lot of great horror movies from this era and, you know, that are um, – that are like you, like I was about to say, a decade later, you get something like The Haunting, where your characters are being driven insane by the threat. Um, and you just didn't right. get that at this time, you know. Again, five years later, with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the paranoia is really setting in, and the and people are playing these characters much differently. It was just, I think, it was just something about this time period. Well, and about you, got, you got Cape Fear, what, two, three years later, dead serious. I mean, that's a movie that yeah. it, it's a little different. Uh-huh. Obviously, it's a suspense film. It's not traditional horror in the same vein as a true horror movie, maybe, but it's uh, to me, it's horrifying. It's very frightening. Uh, yeah. and you know, Robert Mitchum, Gregory Peck, these guys are dead serious. Like there's, it doesn't have that sense of lightheartedness. Like I just took my gal to the movies and we're going to go get a pop shop treat afterwards. Like it's, <laughs> it's scary. And, and right. I don't feel like the movie needed that, uh, kind of levity that it had. They just mm. there's a real lack of urgency to the characters about dealing with the threat. They, they occasionally hit it, but um, especially toward the end when they confront the monster. But yes, yeah, through the through the early portion of the film, which is like the first hour before. I mean, this is it does take a long time to get to the meat of the threat in this film. Um, mm-hmm. But even once it hits, it, you know, this is a weird Not movie meat. comparison, but we. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the vegetable of the matter, right? Um, <laughs> but you know, we get you know we, we we reviewed Jason X on this podcast not too long ago, and this has some similarities to Jason X, where they're all kind of like we're in this room, and then we're going to leave occasionally and kind of deal with this threat and try to figure it out. And um, Jason X really <laughs> ups the ante in terms of uh, horror and, and tension, which I never thought I would say in relation to that film. Um, <laughs> you really, you really. <laughs> see you really see the failure of this film and that's a comedy as well you know but the threat is still real and you don't really get a sense of that for quite a while in this film mm, in fact until they go emperor palpatine on the guy right. <laughs> <laughs> right and in fact you know it does take it 40 minutes until it's even out of the ice and so yeah i just want to let the the modern viewer know if you haven't seen this you know, the pacing is a lot slower than probably what you're going to be used to. But speaking of the vegetable, you guys, let's talk about that. I think, is this the first example of a movie where people tried to make plants scary as an attack force on humans and they weren't? <laughs> like, like it's like, ha, ha, has M. Night Shyamalan not seen uh, well, this movie? Well, I was going to say this. I would, I would give this one a bit of a, uh, a little... Uh, I guess this this one was a little a little more frightening than the happening. Right, right. Yeah, because whenever they figure that out, they just like look into the trees and the and the winds blowing the leaves around, and you're like, woo. 
<laughs> that's the monster in that movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that and that in the script. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, the best plant monster that I can recall is the, you know, Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horrors. But right. I mean, I can't really think of another plant monster that was truly effective. I guess effective. you could look at the ruins. I don't know that there would be a monster per se, but oh, that, Jay loves the ruins. I yeah. love the ruins, but I hate the monster. That monster's terrible. It's what the humans do to each other in the ruins that's scary. Is the swamp thing a like half plant guy? Yeah, but that didn't come out for quite a while. I'm just that would be that would be there. Yeah, that was eighty two as well. Yeah, and you get a little bit of of plant stuff here and there, kind of thrown into movies, but nothing as prominent. uh, With the exception of obviously maybe the swamp thing and Heather Locklear's swamp thing too, or whatever. And before David, uh, our listener starts screaming at us, the movie Matango. (laughs) <laughs> also uh, features <laughs> features uh, plants as as monsters slash killers. Well, what would it help? Now, can we put a moratorium on plants as killers at this stage? Can we can we say <laughs> of a surety that this is an unsuccessful monster, or unsuccessful threat? Yeah, and especially yeah. if you're gonna do it in a movie, which you shouldn't, don't <laughs> don't in the middle of the movie say. Like a carrot, you know. Don't then don't proceed yeah, to compare it to bad. a carrot. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's that's that. that and how do you deal with the carrot? You <laughs> boil it or you burn it. Oh my goodness! Whoa, maybe it was because of all the that snowmen they were carrots. making. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's a shame too because I don't think it was a bad necessarily a bad portrayal of the monster. I think it was it's an interesting a, idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't want to upset Peta because they'll blow something up. You know, (laughs) but uh, and they they typically protect animals and whatnot. But I think plants are animals, too. And as we learned in this, they're also aliens and aliens are people, too. So it's a very gray area. Yeah. But plants just aren't scary, though. Filmmakers out there. So please don't make plant horror movies. Thank you. That's all. That's all I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so where else do you want to go with this Wolfman, Josh? Well, I'm currently eating a pickle, so hold on just one second. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's the direction he's going. Okay. I he see. hates those I'll pickles. I'll just talk about vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I started looking for a carrot or a cucumber or something I could eat. Um, the carrot line killed me. Yeah. Uh, Prize of the carrots. Uh, you know, to me, the interesting thing about this, as we talk about in context of the other two movies, is how much is borrowed from this film, not only from Carpenter's film, but really in a weird way in the 2011 film. Because this, this mirror, the plot-wise, this mirrors more closely the events of the 2011 film. You know, they see the crash, they go look for it, they find it. Mm-hmm. We see the aftermath of all this in the 1982 version. You know, when we, when we get to, um, in 1982, when McCready goes to the Swedish camp or the Norwegian camp and he gets the video of their discovery of the flying saucer. He's watching it. And that video that he watches almost, um, almost directly yeah. mirrors yep. the scene from this film where they yeah. find the spaceship, which I love. I love that. That's the case. Yes. I love that. They stuck with the same look for the buried saucer. I yeah. love that. They, they found the monster in a similar location and cut this block out of the ice. All of these things are so cool 
that these things survived from this original 1951 version. And again, even that opening title, which to me was so um, emblematic of the 1982 version. Like I just saw this, that the opening title of the 1982, the thing as the most iconic opening title main title shot I've ever seen. And then to realize that that came from this 1951 movie kind of blew my mind um, the first time I saw it. And it looks perfect. Yeah, I I was really surprised because I hadn't seen this. It represents... uh, Oh, sorry, William. I just was saying, I I was surprised that the effects looked that good. The title... I didn't know titles looked that good in the 50s, to be honest with you. Yeah. (laughs) It represents the feel of 82's version way more. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a very threatening title shot, right? Like the, the look of it to me is more alien and certainly less plant-like and more, uh, body snatchery, but maybe that's just because I've, I've learned to identify by now. Yeah. But, so you associate it with the 82 version, but yeah, mm-hmm. but I love what you say earlier, Josh, about how, how the movie kind of is reflects the 2011, like there's kind of a more, more harmonious bond between 2011 and the 51 version. And that's why when people called the, the 2011 version a remake, as, or a, I guess a remake of the John Carpenter version, I didn't get that. To me, it's almost like a perfect blending of the two or more of a remake of the 1951 version by far, by far. In fact, the first half of both movies are very similar. Yeah. Almost, you could say, more more of a reboot even in some some respects, even though it's not a whole franchise going forward yet right it's almost like it's making a copy of it you guys yeah yeah exactly and i've known that movie for 30 years there's no way it could be a copy (laughs) yeah it's the it's the the thing of cinema right um speaking william a moment ago he said that he didn't know that titles looked that good in the 50s and i would echo what he said and say that I didn't know that women looked that good in the fifties. Actress Margaret <laughs> Margaret Sheridan. So, two little tidbits about her. I just want to mention. Two little tidbits. They're not Jeez. little tidbits. Jason. That's she perverse. Jason. Oh my goodness. She hasn't <laughs> been. You know, she's just so lovely. And this was her feature film debut, according to IMDb. And you know, she didn't really have much of a career after this, which really kind of surprised me. But. Something that's a weird coincidence is the fact that she died in real life. The actress died in 1982, the same year as John Carpenter's The Thing. Huh. She's, she's a looker. She was definitely yeah. brilliant in that movie. I liked her tidbits, too. You said she didn't work <laughs> again? No, I said this? she didn't have much of a career to oh. speak of. I mean, she she has like 11 credits or something, but... I was surprised. When I first saw her in this, the first time I watched this movie from 1951, I thought, oh, okay, which classic actress is this? I mean, I thought she had been in, like, tons of stuff, but not so. She has the look. She definitely has the leading lady of the era look and vibe, which I love. I think that's my favorite era of, like, leading ladies. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just a classiness you can't duplicate really nowadays. And uh, I was kind of bummed that she didn't do more in the movie or that there wasn't more to the character. Yeah. yeah. Totally agree. Sexism. But you know what? There wasn't even a woman in the 1982 version at all, except for the voice of the computer played by John Carpenter's wife. So, um, right. you know, this is a step up in terms of, uh, female representation compared to the 82 version. Unless the thing creature is female. 
Unless. I mean, I hey, guess that's a good point. We don't have a way oh. of knowing that. I was going to well, say, Ke- no Keith clue. David's kind of feminine in that movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> Is he? Is he ever? Uh, the, the, um, uh, the original artist sketch or the makeup artist of the thing had a giant penis on the monster. So I'm just putting that out there. Okay. What? That actually happens a lot in, in concept art. I mean, not, and this is kind of out there, but like all the God of War games, the giant uh, trolls or whatever they are, it's the same kind of thing. And they removed it and they've done tests like that with tons of movies. I actually, I don't know how I got on this once, but someone was talking to me about it and, uh, the thing came up and it was like that. They'd kind of tested it first with that. Also in uh, a movie that I despise, but I know at least one of you guys likes, Alien Resurrection. <laughs> the nasty, ugly, pencil-nosed, worst creature ever, the hybrid, originally was supposed to have both genitalia. And uh, they removed that as well. And I think for good reason. It would be distracting and definitely weird. <laughs> I like both genitalia on my monsters, personally, but anyways. <laughs> so before we wrap up this particular review, it's weird. as we that's move... maybe the weirdest comment <laughs> ever said on the show. Yeah, that's... Uh, and, I'm, and I'm trying to think of what, 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 what ones do you like? Are you thinking Rocky Horror Picture Show? What are you thinking, Jason? I mean, I'm trying to think, like, who would this be offensive to? And I think the answer is it's just too weird everyone? to be offensive. Yeah, I, I, I think people are out there trying to want... They're trying to figure out if they're offended. You know, he really likes Michelle Myers, Michael Myers' twin sister slash him. Right. Well, and at the core, <laughs> you know. I mean, and and uh, who is the who is the girl in um, uh, Sleepaway Camp too? Oh, that's the worst, <laughs> most horrifying ending I've ever seen. By the way, yeah, yes, it is. Oh, Station <laughs> flipped out at that. My 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 kids were were ready to go to bed, and they were coming from from upstairs, and I'm watching the end of that movie, and they go, "Oh, what's this?" I said. Well, now it's a horror movie, just so you guys know. They go, oh, we can, you know, we can handle these, no problem. And they watched the ending of that movie. I looked over my youngest son. He's got his his hands, almost like, you know, the, I don't know what monkey it was, the, the hear no evil. He's got his hands on his head like that. And he goes, oh, we're supposed to go to bed now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's priceless. And yet Jason's favorite villain right there. <laughs> yep. All right, so as we start to wrap this up, though, I want to just ask you guys, want to go around the horn before we give our ratings on this one, and I want to talk about how you're judging this film, where you're coming at it, because, and and we debate this many times probably, but basically for me, I'll just start off. When I watch this film, I know it was shot in the 50s. It's a 1950s film. It comes from a different era and everything, but as a film critic, I mean, you could judge it for its quality and what it could do at the time. But I just want listeners to know with my rating, I'm judging it for how, you know, a modern audience would perceive it in its overall entertainment value. That's where and I'm I, coming from. I don't understand that at all. I know. You and I are <laughs> diametrically opposed when it comes to this very point, Dr. Shock. But I mean, it's this. Here's how you would rate it if you saw it. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> what? <laughs> You're, you're saying you're basically saying to everybody, "Here's how I think you would rate this movie." Let me ask you a question, Doctor. <laughs> so you're going to slap them around and say you can't possibly appreciate a movie from pre 1980. <laughs> so here's how you would rate this movie. No, I am rep. I am representing the people who feel like I do, where they don't want to sit through a super freaking slow, boring 
movie. That's all. And then that's that's who I'm trying to represent. But the real question is, I mean, how often do you sit around Dr. Shock and watch Nickelodeons? I haven't seen you review a lot of Nickelodeons on DVD Infatuation, so is that because... Nickelodeons? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The I mean, the old school, the very first initial films. Are those available on DVD? Well, as a matter of fact, Jay, I did review three movies from 1901. Nice. That okay. were just basically real lifes from New York. I put them all together in the same review. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so I would like to ask, when was the last time you were out there? <laughs> well, touche. I got to check that out then, because... I didn't know that. No, but, I don't, but then again, I don't know that they were Nickelodeons. But no, <laughs> right. I, I don't have access to a Nickelodeon machine. So I could drop a nickel in and, and watch a four-minute movie. Sure, sure. My, but my point is overall Most is that, on DVD. that we, we can appreciate what was done. But typically, if we're looking for entertainment value, you know, there's a reason why the Avengers this past weekend made billions of dollars. Not that it's classic necessarily yeah, I, classic cinema it's just entertaining that's all. no i i i agree i think more people have access to the avengers than nickelodeon that's right <laughs> but also different people find different things entertaining you 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 act as though appreciation cannot be enjoyable like that's that's the thing like you you're act like appreciation is like only cerebral <laughs> it's like and clinical. and that no that no heartfelt joy can come from anything cerebral <laughs> Well, you know what I mean, right? Well, I, I, hear you. I don't disagree in some ways. I mean, it the clinical aspect of appreciation. Like I appreciate movies that I don't enjoy. Sometimes I don't even enjoy the experience, but I can certainly appreciate it. I actually, as weird as it is, I'm going to defend Jay here if that's what you're saying, of course. <laughs> and I'm going to say that it is, so that my point is stronger. <laughs> well, whether well that at this point, whether it was or not, it will be. But definitely go yeah. ahead. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Proceed. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, what I'm saying is I do think that that makes some sense uh, to be able to appreciate something like I, I can appreciate uh, the organization of. Well, that's going to I'm not going to use that as an example. I can appreciate um, how deadly a virus can be, for example, because it's fascinating on a clinical level. Appreciation removes all the emotion out of it. And to me, enjoyment is is grouped in there with the emo- with the emotional spectrum, if you will. Yeah. So to say that someone can appreciate something and not enjoy it, sure, I can fully buy that. Or I mean, and that was well said. And I'm not I saying think- that that's untrue, but I think Jay, in my opinion, you seem to close off the notion that if someone is appreciating it for external reasons, that that isn't giving them internal pleasure. No, no, I never said that at all. Bam! You don't say that. That's my point. You're insinuating that. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not even <laughs> intending to insinuate it. But I'm just saying, like for example, you're like we can all appreciate it, but you can't possibly actually like this, right? I can. I can. <laughs> I can appreciate the fact that green beans are very flavorful. Actually, I mean they they have a very strong flavor. But I don't love green beans, so I don't eat green beans all the time. Yeah, but there are people that love green beans, and I think your insinuation is that that's not really possible. No, no, that's not true. That's that's inaccurate. All I'm saying is that I represent a subset of people who approach films in a way that entertainment value is primarily the most important thing. At least that's what it is for me. And so I would argue that, yeah, there are people out there listening to this podcast who feel that way too. So 
That's no, where I'm, I'm coming sure. from. But my point um, is, is that you can get entertainment value from other, th- like you're saying, again, you're saying, if I appreciate it, that's not entertaining to me. No, I never said that. You're saying you represent people who watch movies for entertainment. No, what I'm, I'm saying, saying is I have a, I have a cerebral appreciation for things. And that to me is entertaining. I'm saying I represent me. And if people are out there who relate or understand where I'm coming from, then they will get something out of my rating or not get something out of it. Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, and I know where I know where you're coming from. The way you were explaining it at first, you're saying I'm reviewing this. My rating is for those people out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you people know, who uh, who kind of have my sensibilities okay. about entertainment value. All right, well, that's value. fine because the, the, well, that, that makes perfect sense. And I, I know where you're coming from. I was originally thinking like – it almost originally sounded to me like I'm not going to rate this what I think. I'm going to rate this what you think. No, or no, what no. I think you think. I would never do that. Okay. Because I, I feel like that's a big, huge breaking uh, film critic rule on that. As, as, I, that's what well, I always as did. I. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say, Josh? That's what you so always That's what did? I only do. Oh, really? <laughs> What's my recommendations? What's <laughs> yeah. my recommendations? The way yeah. you should rate it, too, for sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Okay. Well, for me, the thing from another world, now that people know at least where I'm coming from, it's a five out of 10. I call it a low priority rental, but I do think it's worth renting just if you appreciate these newer thing movies. I think there's like some significant things that you'll see, some definite parallels, some echoes, and I think you'll like that. I think that you'll get something out of it, but it is deadly slow. It's very slow paced. It takes a long time, so I don't find this movie super entertaining. But five out of ten low priority rental. What do you say, Metroid? Well, uh, I would say that the movie is probably, I would say a six, and uh, it's a, a low priority rental. I'd say it's it's a six because it does hold some significance in history, and despite the fact that you get some super unevenness in the tone of the characters, despite the fact that there's some opportunities missed and how they could have represented some of the horror aspects. I think it's an important movie. And I think if people are lovers of classic films, especially science fiction or horror, you got to watch it at least once or twice uh, in your lifetime, the black and white and the colorized, I'd say, but uh, not a high priority rental and, and certainly not a movie that anyone has to own. Okay. And does your rating come from a place? I mean, like, how do you feel about that? Do you rate and things for when they're made or or what? No, I tried to be as unlike you as I could. Okay. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. for, me, for me, a big part of it's the nostalgia. So I'm trying to avoid the fact that growing up with a movie gives me a sense of nostalgia. I, I tend to do that on the sci-fi podcast where I'll rate something a little higher based on uh, the the warm fuzzies that it gives me or whatever. I think I've been called out on that before, actually. It's fair, though. Uh, That's part of your experience. You can't. It is. Right. You can't erase that from yourself sure like i would rate star wars a thousand out of ten because i'm an idiot but it it just means that much to me but i do think that with a movie like this i'm trying to go more based on what would someone who'd never seen it need to hear and honestly if someone you know i'm kind of going over some of the names i I see on the boards and some of the listeners especially those that have come over to our show what would they think if they'd never seen this before? And I, I can't give it any higher rating. Now, if I go based on my nostalgia or based on how much fun it was to watch this with my mom, that's probably closer to an eight, 8.5, but I'm trying to be a little bit more 
neutral in that respect. Okay, I see. All right, and what do you say, Dr. Shock? Um, you know what? I, I'm going to give it uh, a... I'm actually going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. <laughs> I'm going to call it a rental. I I, it, I think it has a place in history. I think it's, it is worth uh, seeing, you know, fr- from that respect, especially if you are a fan of the, uh, of the, of the giant carpenter, you can kind of see, okay, here's the, the sort of the previous version of this. Uh, I, I will agree that it does have its issues with regards to um, the, the dialogue and, and then the way that the characters handle um, the, the, the situation as it arises. But with that in mind, I, th- I think it has some really strong scenes, especially later in the film, when it comes to um, to the monster itself. And I think um, Hawks's decision, you know, that you don't get too many close-ups might have helped in that regard. Mm. So I, I think it's worth, I'd say, 7.5. It's, it's a rental, and it's worth seeing. Nice. Okay. And you, obviously, you, you're the opposite of me. You you appreciate films for the time that they're made in and well, that's how I, your rating I, you know, I, I, I appreciate them, but I like them too. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like I appreciate that irreversible was a very well-made movie, but I will never want to watch it again. Right. Because of how, how devastating it was. Uh, you know, the two moments in particular, yes. Uh, that were just horrific. I'll never, but I can appreciate that it was a good movie. If someone says, Hey, was that a good movie? Was it, was it a well-made movie? Yeah, it was, but I can't recommend it. I can't recommend watching it. I like sitting down and watching these old movies. That's just me. I could sit down and throw on the original Dracula at any point and watch it and enjoy myself, even having seen it as often as I have. So it's not just, it's not just appreciation for me. It's, it's also enjoyment. Uh, And I do understand that there's not that many, um, horror fans out there who, who mirror that. And, you know, that's absolutely fine. But, um, so yeah, it, it is an appreciation definitely, but it's not solely appreciation. Gotcha. And what do you say, William Solo? Yeah. So before this discussion, I just chose without putting a lot of thought into it. I just went to really looking at it as a product of the time that it was made in. Now, so that's the opposite of you. But the thing is, is I'm not I didn't do that going like, yeah, I'm going to go against some people who I know are going to do something different because <laughs> the, hearing everyone talking, I know this might sound, you know, I, I'm not one to I'm not necessarily gifted as a mediator personally, but I'm honestly saying I see value in everyone's point. To me, I would be more critical I have to accept the premise that is given. So, Jay, you set up your parameters, and then you worked within the parameters you gave, so I'm perfectly fine with what you're doing. I I don't see why. I'm not threatened by it. I'm not bothered by it because you're working within the parameters that you want to work within. So my parameters were I'm I'm rating it to what it – I really looked at it to how this must have come – like when it came out, how people perceived it. And I just was like, I bet this was huge. Like people must have been so into this movie at the time. Like I think, you know, it just seems like it was it was covering themes that were pretty new and haven't been that explored. And that's the premise. And I'm doing that just for this. Do I do it always? Absolutely not. I'm doing it though today, and I'm doing it right now for this movie. And that's the premise that I'm 
I'm setting up for me. Neat. Um, so to me, I I actually enjoyed it. I mean, yeah, it, there are things that are dated, no doubt. <clears throat> and if you go from watching the Avengers, which makes no sense as an analogy to me, and then go, what's next? I'm excited. Woo, I'm riled up. What am I going to watch? <laughs> I'm not going to say, watch this movie. You're, right. you're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, absolutely not. That's crazy town. So, to me, it's a seven, though. I'm really glad I saw it. Uh, I probably, though, unless I'm researching something, will never see it again. But I do want to set up uh, – I really loved the ending. I had never seen an ending like this. So, it, you know, it gets all wrapping up at the third act. I just want to give a little impression here. And it's just like – Beep, 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 beep. And it's all, and remember, see, and this is in a radio, look to the sky and keep an eye out for anything that doesn't look like you. Then kill it. Brought to you by Ovaltine. <laughs> yes. I'm like, whoa, that was the craziest ending ever. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so is that a rental then, Kill Bill Kill? Uh... I guess if you if you heard what I said and you feel inspired to <laughs> rent it, then please do so. Okay, buddy. He doesn't give recommendations. Oh, I see. All right. And what about you, Wolfman Josh? What do you think? I I'm someone who purely rates films based on the entertainment level that that I get while I'm watching a movie, just only on my enjoyment. And for me, what I enjoy are interesting films and looking at the context within which the film was made and trying to kind of figure out, Oh, how this sits in cinema history and what that means in terms of what it meant to people at the time, how that might be perceived today, what has changed in filmmaking since then. And so for me, when I look at a film like this, which I, I usually refer to this as the age of Ultron of 1951, um, because <laughs> this was the most successful science fiction film of that year. Right. And it was, you know, that's beating out a film like The Day the Earth Stood Still. And it's oftentimes considered the best science fiction film of the 50s. And so I think that makes it significant. And that significance is not enough for me to give it a higher rating, but it is enough for me to take it seriously and try to figure out why that is. And so I look at a lot of this corny dialogue and staging and cinematography that I personally feel is ineffective. But what I am taking pleasure out of is figuring out why they did it and trying to figure out, um, you know, what and how that's affecting the story and how I'm re how I'm receiving it as a viewer. So I, I think to me, this was a really enjoyable experience. I find all the cheesy dialogue and all that stuff very charming and I laugh at it. So like I'm also even appreciating this from almost a so bad it's good point of view. Where I'm like, that line is ridiculous. Why aren't these guys scared? And I find all of that really funny, but I'm also really enjoying what thinking about, oh, wow, what if I was sitting in the theater in 1951 and this was the best sci-fi movie of the year? Like, what would that feel like? And all these things are kind of like going on in my head. And to me, that's a visceral, pure entertainment experience, just in maybe a different way than some people might perceive that. So for me, this is a seven. I'd call it a rental. And I think it's a movie that if you love the 1982 version of the thing, it's worth checking out just on a um, novelty level. And I think if you're someone that loves science fiction movies, because that's what is what I would call this. I would call this first uh, sci-fi, second, a thriller, not much horror in there. There are a couple of cool scenes like with a dog 
when he busts through the door, when they electrocute him that I think are really cool scenes actually that I really liked a lot. Um, but most of the, it's not scary. And a lot of that is because you're depending on the reaction of the cast to, to, to give you a level of how scared you should be. And since they're not that scared for most of the film, you don't ever really feel that scared. <laughs> right. Um, but it's still fun. It's a blast, I think. And um, absolutely worth checking out if you like kind of old sci-fi movies. Nice. Yep. Well done. Okay, so that is our review of The Thing from Another World. Also, sometimes called The Thing from Another Planet. Also, sometimes colorized. Correct. What? Well, and also sometimes just called The Thing. And they really, you can tell from the movie posters and from that opening title why they shortened that in later versions because they really they really sit heavily on the thing and then it's almost a subtitle from another world yes yes well said okay well at this point we're gonna move into our next <laughs> review our feature review john carpenter's the thing from 1982 i'm gonna hide this tape when i'm finished if none of us make it at least there'll be some kind of record Storm's been hitting us hard now for 48 hours. We still have nothing to go on. What were they doing flying that low? Shooting at a dog, at us. Mm -hmm. Stir crazy. Cabin fever, who knows? Get a hold of somebody. Get a hold of anybody. We've got to report this mess. I doubt if anybody's talked to anybody on this entire continent, and you want me to reach somebody. Looks like something buried under the ice. We got to just burn these things. We can't burn the find of the century. That's going to win somebody the Nobel Prize. Thousands of years ago, it crashes, and this thing gets thrown out or crawls out, and it ends up freezing in the ice. This is pure nonsense. So this film is set in the Antarctic rather than the Arctic, um, and it follows a group of scientists on an expedition in Antarctica, and they're in a little uh, military-type base, and they're all um, using their – it's really kind of unclear exactly what they're doing. <laughs> they're all kind of uh, you know, amusing themselves or busying themselves with different projects, um, Wilford Brimley is probably the most scientific of the crew. You also have Kurt Russell as McCready, who is the helicopter pilot and kind of the bit of the Han Solo type. And ultimately your protagonist, you've got Keith David is in this movie, Richard Mauser, who I think is awesome in this movie is he's kind of the dog handler, Donald Moffat, who's the guy in charge and just a really great cast of interesting characters who are all mostly despicable human beings who hate each other's guts. And I think that's what really makes this movie so much fun on top of all of the genre elements is that these guys don't like each other from the get go. And right. it only gets worse from there. There's so and, much tension, so much yeah, tension early so much on tension. that, that, and you see it in, in every scene They're smoking dope out in, in the open. And this is, like you said, there's a sort of a, not so, so much military, but there's still some sort of a, a hierarchy there. Um, yeah. The one guy said, Hey, turn your radio down. And he, he almost turns it up. You know, yeah. you got Kurt Russell pouring his drink into the computer because it beat him at chess. Yeah. You know, these, these are people who are already on edge. They're already tense. They're already, you know, to the point that they want to strangle each other. <laughs> yes. 
Absolutely. And so there's the scene where all of a sudden you see this dog being chased across the tundra by some guys in a helicopter and, you know, and they're firing a rifle at this dog. And you're like, what is going on here? And if you've never seen this movie, honestly, I'm not even joking a little bit. Stop listening to this right now and watch the movie because it's so much more interesting to watch this movie unravel if you have no idea what's going on. Oh, yeah. And, and so this dog eventually makes its way into their camp and seems to be the carrier of something parasitic that, uh, you know, and this film is a body snatcher movie and it's just, I don't know. It's incredible. Trouble ensues. And there are so many great scenes that I'm really excited to talk about here. But basically the big difference to me between this and the 1951 version is this is almost dealing with the aftermath. So this is interesting because in this film, something has happened at another camp and it's the Norwegians camp. And for these guys, it's almost as though it was the camp from 1951. So in some ways, it is a sequel to that movie in spirit, which I think is really cool. Yeah, neat. Yeah. That is cool. Um, just real quick, I wanted to just let people know, the listeners out there, this is kind of interesting to me. And this probably stands across the board for everybody, if I were to guess. But if you go to our our lists part of our website, a horrormoviepodcast.com. By the way, Josh did a great job with the the artwork on this page. It's so yeah. cool. I'm looking at it, loving it again. Anyway, each one of the four official hosts on this, uh, Jay the Dead, Wolfman Josh, Dr. Shock, and Dr. Walking Dead, we all have The Thing 1982 in our top 10. In fact, um, Josh... A lot of times, don't didn't you say that? I mean, right now it's listed at your number two, but sometimes you kind of swap it with Halloween. Those two switch spots, is that right? Yeah, John Carpenter is one of my favorite filmmakers to ever live, and his two films, 1978's The Thing, or sorry, 1978's Halloween and 1982's The Thing, kind of switch off taking that top spot depending on the day and how I'm, whatever I weird thing I ate. If there's a spot of mustard that's not agreeing with me, it might be one film over the other. What about a pickle? A pickle puts the thing at the top, I got to tell you. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. That's interesting. Now, I just wanted to ask if this is the same for um, William Rowan Jr., or I should say Kill Bill Kill and Matroid. Do you guys have this same, is the thing in your top 10 horror movies? Without a doubt. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Okay. And I am actually exactly in the same boat as Wolfman. I mean, I think Neat. John Carpenter's Halloween is one of the most amazing slasher movies ever made. I mean, these are two different kinds of horror movies to me. So I get totally different things out of them. So I almost like, instead of trumping each other, I put them on the same playing field. And then I just go, which one am I in the mood for? You know? Yeah. Right. They're, they're very different movies. For me, Carpenter's at his best when he's got Kurt Russell. You know, I mean, I love the Escape From movies. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love Halloween. I really do. And actually, my love of Halloween, the entire series, went up quite a bit listening to, to the uh, episodes from last October when you guys covered them. Uh, really made me, once again, appreciate some of the greatness in there. And, and remembering that I've got a few of us, actually, Josh and, and William and I have a friend that was in one of the Halloween movies as an extra. And I remembered that. So some of that's fun for me. But the thing I love about The Thing, and specifically John Carpenter, uh, is that it's so unique to itself. And it's been copied and, and, and there's been attempts to try to 
kind of lift ideas and themes and looks from it. And nothing has even remotely come close to doing it. From the very beginning of the intro, Josh, you were right. The intro is so unique and it's immediately captivating, even though almost nothing is going on. It's like the sake of action in its purest form. There's a dog running. Like that's, to me, that is super brilliant way to open up a movie in, a, in an attempt to build suspense because you're immediately throwing someone in, an, in a weird environment. You're giving them an unusual opening and you're saying, and this is just how it starts. So for me, John Carpenter, the lighting, the tension, the pacing, the staging, everything, he was at his A game in this movie. I mean, I think it's his best it's certainly in my top 10 horror movies. Oh, yeah. And it's something that you brought up there. I love that it's a mystery as well. In fact, my favorite genre classification or subgenre classification for a sci-fi horror flick is horror first, sci-fi second, mystery third. And that's exactly how this film is built to me. Yeah, no comedy, so it's right up your alley. Yes. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are funny lines Deadly in it for serious. sure. Yeah, but it's so yeah. serious. Well, I love it. there's not a lot of funny lines. In fact, from my recent watch of it, I think there's only one line that's intentionally was clearly, like, going to be funny. But even then, it's in a messed up, really messed up situation. Mm-hmm. You guys know, yeah. like, what I'm talking I about? I know, which I think I, I know. Too. I, I, I You've got to. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, you, Dave was spot on when he said that. Like all they do is display. I mean, really, it's it's super effective by being super simple. Uh, super, 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 super. Sorry. You've got this tension that's been built up from these guys living in an isolation. I mean, if you if you're desperate enough to pour soda on a on a computer because it just beat you at chess, like that's pretty <laughs> pretty guttural, pretty early man. Like that's not civilized behavior. Well, right. These guys, these guys are at each other's throats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think they all hate each other. Wilford Brimley's characters, even though he's likable, especially at first, there's this element of like I hate being around these guys. I'd rather be home. I'd rather be. Right. Learning about the Mormon Church eventually, um, <laughs> you know, there's something about something about this, uh, Dave. When you said that about how they're all already basically at each other's throats, to me that that perfectly describes the the worst case scenario. That even the humor that comes across, it's not funny. It's not even black comedy funny. It's like whatever humor is to be found is found in the the unfringing of sanity, which. Right just again repeats this theme that nothing is safe. You can't get up to go to the bathroom because you might be in jeopardy. You have to watch the movie and you have to watch it through to the end. It's, it's so, so good at that. And and it's, and it's, it's you, like I said, they already want to kill each other. Then you throw in the, you throw into the mix that any one of them could be a killer. Yeah. And that's just it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the spark that lights the dynamite to this keg, you know, and it's going to blow. And I think Carpenter's really, really good at showing that. Which know, show, blows show. my mind that people don't like. Initially, a lot of people didn't like this movie. How is that well, even it, possible? It was, it was just timing. And even Carpenter himself, there's a book out there, Prince of Darkness, a bunch of you know interviews with him. It came out a week after ET, mm-hmm. which yeah. which Blade Runner came out after ET. It's, there was just something about you know, and neither one of those movies did well. Um, John Carpenter, one of the things in his book, he, he, and I've mentioned this before, he talks about it. He says he he was at a uh, a screening of this movie, you know, where they where they had like a like a uh, you know a test screening, 
and he had a Q&A afterwards, and this young girl got up. He thought maybe, you know, either late high school or maybe early college or whatever, and asked about the ending of the movie. You know, how, how did it end? What what happened there? And was was this, you know, was this that or whatever? I mean, we're getting into spoilers, right, Jay? Yeah, so yeah, they got this. not get to, but... Go ahead, they... What, 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 you know, what was any of, was any of them the creature? What, what had happened at the end there? And John Carver said, well, I'm sort of leaving that up to, you know, your imagination in a way. And the girl said, oh God, I hate that. <laughs> so and wow. John Carpenter said at that moment, I thought, man, I'm, I might be in trouble with this movie. Um, but even that aside, um, it was just timing. I mean, everybody loved aliens that could make their bikes fly and, and, and cure people with, with, you know, uh, little Christmas lights on the tips of their fingers. Ouch. You know, well, so yeah. yeah, that was the big thing at, at that point, and people just weren't weren't into the whole angry alien um, or, or deep sci-fi at that point. And you've got to think that with the coming of home video release, more and more people were able to get their families together to watch movies, and E.T., I don't. I don't recall when it came out on VHS, but I recall watching it quite a bit as a kid. It mm-hmm. scared me. There's scary elements oh, to it. There mm-hmm. definitely, there definitely are, uh, are frightening elements yeah. about that. No doubt but about it. But by comparison, it's it's you know it's it's a kids movie yeah, really. Exactly. And yet Blade Runner and The Thing. Uh, Et is a classic. Don't get me wrong. I think Spielberg, especially when he put the guns back into the movie, right. Um, <laughs> really, what you get there is is a classic because it's so unique. But the mm-hmm. thing and Blade Runner are both easily cult favorite top tens for for most people from those respective genres. I and, yes, definitely, and for good reason. And yet, maybe this happens subconsciously, but I can't recall a time where something overshadowed another uh, one movie overshadowed another to the point to where I didn't enjoy it. Maybe maybe I wouldn't view it because it's not on my on my docket or whatever. But I would have to think that people that watched E.T. that were adults could go into the thing and still get something out of it. It's not like oh, it's, yeah. you can like one you can like one or you can like the other. No, I, I agree. I think it what it and this is again uh, this is John Carpenter looking back at it as well. It's just right. he just said it was bad timing. You know, if that movie came out even maybe a couple months, I mean, I think it was almost the week after E.T. And if it had come out maybe a couple months in either direct, you know, before or after, it would have been a much different you know, a much different story because it, it's it's amazing to me that that what I consider, and I actually do put the thing just above Halloween um, on, on my list. It's my third favorite horror movie, and I guess it would be my second favorite sci-fi movie. Um, and it really is just because because of how incredible the movie is. Um, you know that 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 this movie of his that it just got. I don't see how people at the time couldn't have seen that. I'm I'm with you. I don't see how people at the time couldn't have realized this is something special here. A part of me wonders if, and this is not how I feel, so don't dogpile on me, okay? Because I think this is a masterpiece. But I wonder if at the time people were, if the monster was just too weird for them because they couldn't, they're like, well, what? what is that thing? I mean, like, what is that monster? You know, because you know how people get used to like, okay, it's a vampire or it's a werewolf or something like that. And I just wondered if they just thought it was too bizarre. I I guess it's possible. But personally, I thought it it was terrifying at times. Me too. And we need to credit Rob Boutine because, you know, we talk so much about Tom Savini on this podcast and, and all the other great horror makeup guys. Rob Boutine broke new ground with this movie. he, he blew the doors off of everything that had come before him. And he was really 
a young kid. He was like 20 years old when he did this movie and he was doing stuff that they had no idea how they were going to pull it off when they were doing it. Right. And I suppose it was a relatively low budget, but it was a studio picture. And this was the most money John Carpenter had ever worked with up to this point. And Rob Bettine had just been a fan of his and he'd worked with Dean Cundy, who was the cinematographer and one of the greatest cinematographers of the eighties that really gave us this John Carpenter look of Halloween and the thing also went on to do movies like back to the future. I just love uh, Dean Cundy, but um, Rob Bettine had worked with Dean Cundy on rock and roll high school. And Rob Bettine's like, you got to introduce me to John Carpenter. You got to, you got to introduce me to John Carpenter. So uh, Dean Cundy took him to the set of the fog and they met and, and uh, John Carpenter just really liked him. And so they started, you know, they become, they became friendly. And so when he got this opportunity to do the thing, he called up Rob Bettine and said, hey, man, go nuts. And he worked with kind of a, a famous comic book artist. Uh, and together, the two of them designed the different looks of this monster. But it was really Rob Bettine who had the idea, what if it looks different all the time? What if this creature is an amalgam of all the different entities that it's absorbed over the years? And what if it's always changing and we're just always seeing little bits of the different creatures that it's come into contact with. And that was all Rob Boutine. That was his pitch to Carpenter and it was his task to carry that off. And he made a lot of mistakes. Apparently drove Carpenter nuts on the set because a lot of the things that they tried didn't work. And he was young and inexperienced and didn't necessarily have backup options. So when the stomach didn't work the first time, you know, the classic stomach mouth bite arm biting sequence, mm-hmm. You know, they had to take five hours, eight hours to reset that, which, you know, wasn't what Carpenter wanted. And Rob Bettine almost died making this movie. He slept on the set. He never left. He just worked around the clock, got really sick at the end of the film when it wrapped, had to be hospitalized. And is really largely, even though I think some of those makeup effects don't necessarily hold up as well as they did, I think he is the reason, one of the big reasons that this film has become revered and become a cult classic and become such a popular film as opposed to, you know, what the reception when it first came out. It was a unique version of gore at the time and still kind of holds its own. And there's no doubt about it. The effects, I don't think that they're dated. I mean, they clearly are from a technical standpoint. And Josh, certainly you'd be able to speak to that more than I can. But watching it, I don't feel like I'm watching, uh, uh, Botin or is it Botin? Is that right? Yeah. I always thought it was Botin. Anyway, or even Stan Winston who helped out, I think with the, with the alien when it turned into the, the kennel scene. The, yeah. Yeah. Which Stan is kind of nasty, right? That scene's horrifying. Mm-hmm. But so for good. me, I, I'm not watching special effects. I'm so engrossed in this movie because they don't, they don't really hold back. I mean, they go full bar and it's, it is really, it's not something that you think of that most people think of. I think when they think of science fiction or horror, especially from that era, a lot of these movies that had that kind of gore were harder to find or less accessible. They certainly weren't always studio films. And by this time, John Carpenter was already somebody, you know, he'd made the fog, he'd made Halloween. So I think that really with this, what from a viewer standpoint, I felt like I was getting into the first couple times I saw this was entirely new ground that I would, I didn't think, I, don't, I still don't think it's really been uh, duplicated effectively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say one last thing on the monster while we were 
talking about that. I, I just, I really, I appreciate to no end that we don't see the alien in its original form that we Amen. know of. I mean, that is so yep. brilliant. It's like, oh, like they always want to demask the masked killer or explain away some origin. We don't get an origin story for the alien and we don't see it in its original form. I love it. Yeah. I think you lose power when you take away the mysticism. Mm-hmm. You know, with yeah. the last thing you want to see is, is Michael Myers' face. I, I think the one of the problems with Friday Thirteenth is when they demask Jason. When we see his face, yeah, it plays into the story because of the the unfortunate <laughs> birth defects that he has, right? But mm-hmm. with something like yeah. this, I'm sure there was pressure to to show it. I'm sure there was some executive saying, "Well, you got to give the people an idea of what they're what they're dealing with." And I'm well, the, so the assumption was just that there would be an alien. I mean, I think that just the because sure. again, because Rob Bettin was breaking, going really far outside the box to say we're never going to see this. I mean, that's that's probably something nobody had anticipated when they started the process. Yep. They knew there'd be the body snatcher element to it, and that's what Carpenter was interested in. But they didn't know that the monster one visualized was going to be such a amorphous kind of crazy creature. <laughs> And you don't, I mean, kind of changing gears a little bit, you don't even need the alien in this. I'm so glad it's there. Don't get me wrong. But the body snatcher stuff, when there's nothing going on except McCready holding the blowtorch to the to the dynamite and his the look yes. of complete paranoia on his face. Like, so to me, that shot. that's, it is, it right? Like, like a that's, ghost. Yeah. yeah. Like, what and he's it, gone through to get back in there and he's not messing around, dude. No, he, and <laughs> and I can I can duplicate some of that, the, what he must have been feeling there in in my own life, or I le- I like to believe that I can, at times of heightened fear or anger or upset or whatever, where it's like I don't trust anyone, and the first person that gets near me is going to be killed, and yet this guy really has something going for him. He he's he's survived the elements, which they they just before that said no one could make that, so that gives the viewer some sense of anticipation, like, well, is he McCready still? And yet yeah, when, it's so cool. Cause you don't have to see anything. There doesn't have to be any special effects at all outside of, you know, art and makeup to, to give this movie the sense of horror that it has. And then when they put the, the goop and gore and, and monstrous stuff on top of it, it's almost like a roller coaster on top of a roller coaster. Well, it's just yeah, like they, par- paranoia in an, in itself is, its own monster in this story, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the movie. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yes. Yep. Great comment. Yep. Dr. Shock, what do you have to say about this movie? Um, well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, for me, it's a masterpiece as well. I, for a lot of the reasons people have been, have been, you know, saying here, the, you know, the, the makeup is, uh, or the, um, the special effects are incredible. Uh, even that scene where they end up going to the, you know, to to the to the Norwegian base, and and sort of looking around there and seeing what's going, you know, what happened here, you know, even That's even the, such the a way fun this sequence. it is, I the way it's set up, and yeah. it, it's 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 great, um, and you know, the the way that the characters are, it, 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 when these characters are talking to each other, you don't even get the sense most of the times of even like mutual respect. It's just you're here, I'm here. Let's get this job done, type of thing. Or you're Keith um, David, and you want to kill everyone. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Or, or you just, yeah, you just don't like anybody and you're just tired of everyone. You know, you're like, I've, I've been living with you people long enough. I got to get the hell out of here, you know, type of thing. And that alone is where a lot of it is. Like you're saying, you, you could have done this movie without the alien and it would have been just as tense because you would have had like the paranoia. And I think that they established that, you know, right from the, right from the outset. I mean, they don't even, you know, they're, they're not, they don't waste any time with that. Um, and then, of course, that that you know, everybody knows the, the sort of the incredible scene of uh, with uh, with McCready there, and you know, testing the blood. I don't. I I think I've seen this movie maybe a dozen times. I still kind of jump. <laughs> yeah. When that happens, you totally. have to. You, you you do because it it's just so sort of boom. You know, like everything going along okay. Well, then and then it happens, and you're like, wow, and it gets you every time. Because you think, even at that point, you think you know, well, let's see, this one might be the alien, this one. And it, it sort of catches you off guard each time, you know? It's, it's not the one you're initially thinking it's going to be. And then, of course, that, that the first time when they, when they encounter it, when that one guy's out, and the, 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 the scream the thing lets out uh, yeah. as it's out there in the snow right before it's burnt alive. I'm spinning the redhead, yeah. Yeah, it is that. That's where you start saying, "Wow, this is this is some heavy stuff going on." Here. And his hands aren't all the way, you know, exactly formed like quite, they need to he be. He hadn't quite finished. Oh, he hadn't quite finished I hate morphing. That. It's the scariest scene in the whole movie to me. Yeah. Easily to me too. You know, yeah. in the commentary that I listened to, John Carpenter said that the blood test scene when he read the script is what made him absolutely decide he was making this film. It was the one thing that completely tipped the scales of this is going to be, you know, my opus this is going to be the best thing ever. That's really? what he said. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. That's you know, good. it's, uh, sorry. Go I was just going to say, Dr. Shock, hearing you talk about that, it's funny to think about <clears throat> that even though I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times, but several times, no matter what. And I love Keith David. I think he's great. in they live, which, mm -hmm. uh, Carpenter, right? Like, right. What a, what an yeah. awesome movie. But he's a very different character in this. And he, I think just as a person, kind of emits this, like, very aggressive nature, even though right. I, I understand he's a pretty friendly guy. But in this movie, even though I know what's going to happen, I still think it's him half the time. Right. And I still want the guy to get beat. I just want someone to beat him down. Like, he... It's he does such a good job as an actor of making me dislike him and and mistrust him or distrust him or not trust him, however you want to use that. Mm -hmm. um, and yet at the end you're like, okay, so really that's all been wasted energy. I've spent that energy on this guy, but I had no reason to. I mean, how how good of a job is a director doing when they make a person feel that way every time they view it, no matter what, and and. Even then, at the end, even though you know that this guy's he's a good guy, you're still thinking, no, no, I don't trust him. I cannot trust him so because well, I I've, it, I've learned by now he's he's a bad guy. I think that comes from the ambiguity, honestly, because, um, you know, they debated. They weren't sure. They supposedly they eventually came to a decision. But as they were shooting the film, they said this is from the commentary. Uh, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter and the rest of the cast, they said they would debate for hours 
about all the rules of this monster. You know, they won't. if you're, if you've been turned, do you know you've been turned or do you think you're yourself still? And they yeah. weren't sure. And so some of the actors were playing it one way and others were playing it another way. And I think what, you know, that's interesting about that. Kind of like we talked about with Friday the 13th, some of these things were mistakes, but once the film is finished, there's now a continuity that exists due to this finished product. And it has all these amazing levels going on because actors are kind of stretching and, and going for different things depending on how they're playing their character. Wow. That's neat yeah. you said that because I actually interpret it. I hope this isn't small minded. I just, I have always read this film as if the thing gets you, you're dead. And then it takes over your being or your image and yeah. but you're gone. But so you're saying that some of these actors were, were portraying it as though they were like in there still and they, they knew that they were possessed, basically. I think what the film ultimately says is, is your interpretation. But yeah, when they were making that, these, these were ongoing onset debates. And so, yeah, some of the actors are playing it as evil. Some of them are playing it as, <laughs> though, oh, well, as yeah. though they're unaware that they're the monster. Yeah. And so, A good example of that, I think, is the actor that uh, uh, the guy that has his chest open up to the mouth. There's scenes uh-huh. where he's kind of acting sick, but it looks like he doesn't – he's concerned, like, oh, like, what's wrong with me? That's how I read it, too. That's like, how he I read it, too. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. know, really, like, what's – that he's, he's, he's one of – he's a thing, you know? Wow. Right. What's right. interesting about that is if we did, if you were to read it that way, then it would technically be a possession movie as well. Well, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with the uh, – there's a short story called The Things – by Peter Watts. It was a 2011 Hugo Award nominee. And it's this story from the viewpoint of The Thing. It's actually really good. And cool. uh, it's not the best written thing in the world, but it's cool because it gives this idea that are we? do we even have a first clue if an alien behaving in a way that seems frightening to us is in fact intentionally evil? Like we get that from this because of the way it behaves, because of the the – monstrosity and and the the fact that there's death and and no honesty among these guys but really do we know how this is reacting to its new environment you know in this short story it talks about being exposed to new environment to new entities and everything and it's very afraid and so for some of these actors to play it that way for me I think that makes way more sense. It can be a possession type story, but to me, it just becomes that much more frightening because imagine what it would be like to be partially overtaken. And it's just, it's really, really unsettling. Yeah. The um, Kurt Russell actually talked to this about that on the commentary as well, which I thought was an interesting insight because they were debating again at the end, maybe I am the bad guy. Maybe you're not the bad guy. And they had to come to a decision, but you know, at some point they weren't sure as, is one of them going to be bad or not? Are they both, are they both good? Are they both bad? So, um, you know, Kurt Russell talked about playing. It was like, well, I'm not going to play it differently because for both of these characters, whether I'm the alien or McCready, it's about survival. Like I wouldn't think about myself as a villain. If I, if we crash landed on another alien planet and everything was trying to kill us and we were just trying to survive and do our best to survive, we wouldn't see ourselves as villainous in any way. We're right. just trying to make it out of this alive and get back home, you know? And so he's he's said, well, I wouldn't play that then as a villain. I would be playing it as someone just trying to 
make it through the night, just like I would if I was McCready or the alien. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, for me, it, that's a big part of the movie. I, I Jason, I, I do understand kind of where you're coming from with the way you you said you read this, mm-hmm. and I think it it's kind of enjoyable on both levels. You can look at it as and and the cool thing too is you can follow a lot of these characters. Um, and, and kind of take their side with it. You know, I, I forget his name, but the guy who who's kind of over the dogs, like he has a very interesting arc, even though it's not quite as prominent as the others. Clark, um, Richard Mason. Right, mm-hmm. there we yeah. go. Um, and, you know, I, I identify a lot of these guys with, oh, he was the guy that was in the, uh, the one short on the Twilight Zone movie, or he was the guy <laughs> in It, Stan, that killed himself, right? So some of that, this, it's hard for me to remember their names or even character names at times, but you can kind of look at this movie from a lot of the character standpoint and the movie changes based on who you're siding with or who you're following. I mean, Wilford Brimley, when he goes crazy in there and he's like smashing stuff, that's like the coolest scene. And there, right. he, he's genuinely scary. Like a grandpa that's had his stogie taken away from him. Oh. It's very frightening. <laughs> oh, what those oats can do. Right. 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 And hey, yet when you, when you brought up Clark, I just wanted to add, I forgot to say it in the, my favorite part of the blood test scene, which it's all perfect. It's a great way to have, you know, to set up a scenario to figure out who it is. And it's very suspenseful. But I thought like having seen it a few times, what's truly scary to my soul is when Clark is killed and they find out that he was not a thing. And I just deep in my soul, (gasps) I am shaken because I'm thinking, I probably would have done the same thing. And yeah, now it's just straight up murder, right? Well, he's, he right. was coming at him with a knife. He was coming well, at him I with mean, a knife. No, I think food. William's right. He was in right. big trouble, little China. He knows how to like Not yet. take a knife out of a knife. <laughs> 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 well, he, he, he had escaped from New York. But, you know, guys coming at you with a, with a knife in these heightened circumstances. I love that, though. Child says, now you're a murderer. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> right. You know what's so cool about that, though? The best part about it is... You see uh, McCready as the the role he's meant to play in this. He's like, I don't care. This is not getting out of here, yeah. and I'll kill every last one of you to make sure of that. And no matter what, and if myself. anyone lives, it's me. But, you know, he's like he, – he represents man's base urge to survive, which is so cool because – he he wants every he wants to make sure that everybody's good and safe and he you know they conduct that test and he wants to know who his allies are but at the end of the day he's like but f all of you if I can save anyone it's me and I will commit murder if I think I've got a good enough reason to think that this is that someone is not who they say they are Which, it's it is probably the scariest point in the movie from a psychological standpoint and that yeah. makes him a great counterpoint for the thing itself because yeah. that's exactly what it's doing as well. Yeah. Yep. Well said. Anybody touches me, we go. <laughs> right. And one thing they that always is sort of <clears throat> talked about, and I'm not sure if we if it's the time at this point, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway, is the final scene. You know, and um, when you have Kurt Russell and and Charles there, and they're and they're looking at each other, and they know they've only got a certain amount of time left. And the one, you know, Kurt Russell's like, well, if anything, if you if anything's going to happen, you know, do it now. Type of thing, almost the saying to Childs, are are you are you human or are you this creature? Yeah, you we'll know, know soon enough. Which is we'll know, really we'll, cool. We'll know soon enough. But even if at that point it was the creature, it was the alien, he won't do anything because he know already knows he can survive in the ice for how many years? 
Yeah, there's no you, no reason to actually do anything. There's right no at that point, at that point, it would just be a body being retrieved and taken back, and then he could, when he's thawed out, then he could start his, you know, whatever it is he was planning to do all over again. So even if he was the alien, you know, the, the I guess the thing you're looking at is okay, what is it? Is like, at that point, I think I was pretty sure Kurt, Kurt Russell was not seeing as he had just brought all this holy hell down on the creature, but you never know about childs and you're thinking, wow, yeah, even if he is, he's not going to act. He's just going to sit there. He knows he can't get out. He knows he's stuck there. He's going to let someone come get him. And you, you know, it's cool too, that you've got these two survivors, right? right? Maybe, maybe two survivors. Maybe that's not the right way to look at it. Maybe it's one survivor and one alien survivor or whatever, but uh, it's unusual to have two people survive. Mm-hmm. In movies, it's it's almost always like the sole survivor, right? You got Ellen Ripley, you got this kind of stuff going on, or you've got like a, a group, three or so, and and then another thing on top of that is you've got, and maybe this is intentional, maybe it's not, maybe it's just because of the way the world is these days, but you've got one white guy and one black guy that survive, showing kind of an equality between them. It's like, and I think minorities are represented pretty well in this movie. There's mm-hmm. there are there are some and yeah women are not represented at there all. Are some. And, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, you know what I mean though. It's not always. It's not like there's a token black guy in this. You've got well, they're both the guys who are not willing to stop and nothing to survive. Like yeah. just what you said about McCready is totally true of Childs too. He locks the door on McCready and he's like, "What if you're wrong?" He's like, "Well, then we're wrong." <laughs> like, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, who well. cares? Oh well. <laughs> yeah. But th- yeah. they're not portrayed as these uh, as like secondary valuable characters or anything. It's like McCready. Yeah. He's the hero. He's the guy we follow. He's the most important uh, character as we're, we're given that information kind of up front. But at the end, it's like, is child's not every bit as important. Doesn't he not have the exact same rights to survival or rights to life? And if he is child's and not thing child's, then does he not deserve to survive? If there was one, you know, one way out, and there's only one of them that can go. Does he not every bit as uh, worth getting that one way out? So for me, I thought that was kind of cool because you just don't see a lot of that. And right. nowadays it seems very contrived. Like, hey, by the way, one disabled Asian lesbian made it. Oh, right. And exactly. all the white males were killed because there's it's like this tension that exists or people think exists. And what this movie, movie is that? What movie is that? <laughs> I'm not saying that movie exists. I'm saying – I think I saw that on the Disney Channel. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was Mulan 4. Anyway, <laughs> the point the point is, is that I thought that was pretty cool actually. And I'm a, I'm a Keith David fan and I, I, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. The, uh, I don't want to say the other one. That makes me sound really bad. <laughs> T.K. Carter is T. K. the actor. Yes, T.K. Yeah. Carter. He's awesome. And he's been in some good stuff and it was cool to see his character had value and yep. – I just I appreciated that about the movie, and to go to another extent, you've got different age ranges. You've got different what appear to be different uh, professions, right? A helicopter pilot and a doctor are kind of equals. This this invasion or this thing has rendered them all very equal. There's no time for a, a pissing contest. Nobody is going to be better than the others. It's like every man for himself in the truest form, and I can always find appreciation in that in a movie. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. Well, we've been talking a lot about the monster. I just want to talk a little bit more about the isolation. And this is something that's been common in all three movies. Obviously, the 1951 movie 
preceded Alien from 1979, obviously, but um, this is like Alien, but in the Arctic, right? You know, it's like <laughs> in the in Antarctica, no one can hear you scream, right? And right, and for that reason, this is this is a beastly freaks type of movie. It's a creature feature, obviously, but it's also and by my estimation, it's a survival horror flick because you have that perishing scenario where the characters are caught in a situation, they're stuck in that situation, and the longer they're in that situation, the more deadly it becomes. And so that's just another thing that jazzes me about this film because it works on a lot of different levels where the horror is. I mean, some people who are into psychological horror would say just an isolation film itself where people are stuck in the snow and about to be frozen, this movie called Frozen, <laughs> would be it would be an example, right? So, I mean, this works on a lot of different levels in that way. And I've always thought of it as, because um, I, I understand all that, and it's clearly sci-fi horror, but I've always, I, w- I think of the, there's like this sub-genre of all this of hunted, and, it, and you're being hunted, you know, this is Tremors, Alien. There's lots of movies, but these are my favorite kind of movies. Not only by this outside monster or force or or unknown threat, but also what happens eventually is by each other. And that that dynamic, I just can't get enough, guys. I mean, zombie yeah. movies really is is similar. There's just a lot of them, right? <laughs> but it's the same setup, right? You're being hunted down, and people tend to be picked off, you know, one at a time. But then also now you're, you know, you turn on each other and there's for good story and good suspense and good drama. There is not a better scenario in my opinion. Right. Love it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And William, have you, have you seen the ruins? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. That's why I think that movie works. A lot of people probably hate it because the monster is totally stupid in it. But what's awesome is, is kind of what you described is you've got these characters who, the way they treat each other in the name of survival, I mean, the awful things that they do, and it just, it, it increases, it heightens, and man, that freaks me out. It's so scary what we do to each other. <laughs> I love it. You know, in a way, it's kind of a vampire movie. It, I was thinking about that earlier, how they have to invite it in for it to do any damage, and once it's in there, it feeds off of others. And it creates emotional havoc. Now, that's crazy. It's reaching. But I was trying to think of all the movies or all the the type of narratives that this movie accomplishes. Siege narrative, maybe. Um, Isolation, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool how it's, you know, some people are going to say it's a science fiction movie. Other people are going to say, no, it's a horror movie. Some people will say it's suspense. Some people will say it's this and then a subgenre behind that. And no one is wrong. And most of the time, a movie fits one or two categories, and it's hard to argue its way out of that. But in this movie, it, it's open to interpretation on such a grand scale that it's almost too widely ac- accessible to to think that it could be as successful as it is in a way. Sometimes for a, a genre film like this, one that's based so heavily in horror, for example – you would think that it would have to be kind of targeted to horror fans in order to work. But I know people that don't like horror movies that love this movie. And I know people that don't like science fiction movies that love this movie. And for me, it's kind of like saying, well, I don't like water, but I like ice. Or I don't like (laughs) ice cream, but I like root beer floats. Like, it's kind of all contained. And so you talk about some of these, you know, the isolationist idea and some of that. And for me, that just 
continues to pile on the kind of movie that this really is and why it's so successful across the board and yet kind of spits in the face of people that say that that can't really happen in Hollywood. Well, and it's not just, you know, the thing from another world that's an influence on this film. I feel like uh, Rio Bravo, the other Howard Hawks classic film, uh-huh. is a huge influence on this movie. Like, there's a lot of Rio Bravo in the film. Yeah, and then Carpenter... Carpenter and there's a siege marriage. Yeah, and he did that a few times because what Assault on Precinct 13 was, also, was very much yep. influenced Rio by Bravo. Rio yeah, Bravo. Absolutely. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I don't believe I'm misquoting here. People can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was in our best of the 80s and 90s epic Horror Palace bonus episode. Uh, you know, Greg Amortis, our mutual friend over on Land of the Creeps, shout out to Greg Amortis. Uh, he loves John Carpenter, as everybody knows, and I believe that he said that that he doesn't really consider this uh, a horror movie that much because it's more of a sci-fi to him. And I think that's really interesting because what you said is so true, uh, Matt. Because I think people do approach this film in different ways, and what I want to say about that is, I think that's what makes it so effective and so powerful. Because like the two greatest '80s horror films are The Shining and the thing to me because I think those are masterpieces uh-huh. and and I think they're the filmmaking like the things that are worthy of being praised like the technical aspects the story the performances it has the whole package both of these films do this and the shining and I think that's what makes it great it it kind of in a way it transcends its genre and it becomes a story that gets at the heart of us, that, that, that makes us afraid in such a way that's just kind of universal fears to all people. Yeah. This requires a lot less energy to enjoy than, uh, than The Shining, I think. Both are very good movies. Both have, uh, I mean, like you said, qualities are across the board. And yet The Shining, it's almost like if you're not willing to invest yourself in, in some of this and ride along and, and realize that, it's very cerebral, then you may not enjoy the movie. And it's a lot more graphic in some of its nature with a father trying to kill his family, for example. And yet when you go to the thing, it's like, it's a completely different type of story. You don't have to know anything, believe anything. You don't have to be wondering or suspecting anything. You can just go along for the ride. You can get into that as we've been discussing, but it's not super important. Whereas the shining, it's kind of like, what is going on? All I know is that, uh, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a little boy. In the thing, it's like there's an alien. It's in the room. Who is it? We're all going to die. So the two greatest horror movies from the 80s, and I agree with you, and yet so different. Some of the same technical yeah. achievements. I, I think the thing is, I don't know. I don't want to say it's better, but it's it's more enjoyable to watch on a regular basis for me. But very different movies. You know, the you talk about the there's an alien in the room. Who is it? And we're all going to die. The, the scene we've my favorite scene in this movie, and we've touched on it, is the test scene. And I think this is a huge accomplishment. Um, I didn't know that that it existed before Carpenter came on board the project. But um, is that what you said, William? That that was the scene that made him want to do it. He or just it? in the commentary, he just said, "When I read that in the script, that's what made me." decide to absolutely make this movie so i don't know what that okay. i don't know the pro- I, all I heard anyway that scene is incredible and it adds to the body snatcher 
genre, subgenre as well. So it's additive. Like this movie also, another random influence that's all outside of typical horror and sci-fi is Agatha Christie's 10 Little Indians. This is very, very much inspired by Agatha Christie's 10 Little Indians For in terms sure. of story structure. Oh, yeah. And, yep. what, and what the test scene does is it allows you to figure out who the killer is, which is really difficult to do without a detective, you know. And in this scene or in this movie, McCready kind of is the detective. And he's he's and what they find out is that every cell of this thing wants to stay alive. You know, McCready says, if I if I cut you, you bleed. That's it. Like those cells are dead. And this with this thing, if you cut it, every part of it's trying to survive. And we see that when, you know, the guy's head lob, get, you know, falls off the table, grows legs and scurries away. Um, <laughs> you know, and they, and they visualize that as well with the computer when we see the cells uh, copying each other. And, oh, the, be- the best 8-bit, most advanced yeah. 8-bit computer ever where he can, like, type <laughs> questions to it like Google or Siri. And it's, like, intelligent and knows, like, statistics of the world. And it's, like, right. 8-bit. And I That's love right. that. It's, like, punt, like. It's like steampunk kind of technology. I love it. And that that goes to show what year does this take place? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I don't. The, the, I don't the remember them. It was more advanced it. than it obviously yeah, than it was at the they, time. They do in the opening scene. They say it's 1982. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't remember that. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember wondering about that anyway. So this test scene is so incredible because he figures out a way that he can test, which is basically I'm going to draw blood from each of you. Why the the thing didn't react poorly when he stuck a needle in its arm to draw the blood. I'm not sure or when they cut the thumb to draw the blood. I'm not sure, but they, they get this blood and they have them in all these Petri dishes and they heat up this wire and they're going to stick it into the blood and burn it. And you know, they're assuming they don't know, but they're assuming that if you're the alien, there's going to be some sort of reaction. And it's just a, such a tense scene. It's so incredibly well done. And this is again, additive from, uh, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, there's not a scene like this. There's not a scene where we're all in a room and one of us might be the alien and we don't know who it is. But this is something that after this movie, every Body Snatcher movie has from, right. from this point on. Right. And and it's so incredible. And and it's yeah, a scene it that, of course, comes up in the 2011 film. It comes up in The Faculty. They, they rehash this over and over again. But I love my favorite aspect of it is that these guys are all tied together on this couch. Right. And they're, and they're <laughs> stuck next to this thing as it's, as it's starting to freak out. And, be free, and they're trying to yeah, move like, away. So good. It's so good. Yeah. You know what? I think the best part of that scene is for me, it's, it's kind of one of those – if you don't know you're looking for it, you may never see it. But it's when they say, how do you even know this is going to work? And the look on McCready's face, for a split second, he's like, oh, man, I haven't thought this through at all. And then he's like, yeah, right. he, he, he all but says, I don't know this is going to work, but I'm going to kill us all if we don't try something. And There's the something thing is, about is like, that is so cool. Well, the, and the characters all start to doubt him as it goes on and the audience starts to doubt him and he's doubting himself, but they have to go through with it because there's nothing else. They don't have any other ideas. And yeah, so that's so perfect. And when it works, when it actually does happen, it totally takes you off guard. It's a jump scare because you're not expecting it at that moment. You know? It's a you non-cat jump scare at that, which is great. It's a well, yeah, which it's a well done jump scare. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's earned and it's organic to the plot. Yeah. Now, see, that is not a cheap jump scare. It is a legitimate organic jump scare, yes. Yeah. And it works every time, too. Every, I, I, every, know it, I know it's coming. And, Dave, I know I've heard you talk about this in some yeah. movies. You know it's coming. And this is one of those where it's like, you know, I, it's we're going to need a bigger boat. Like, it's the same kind of thing. And there's just a few movies where every <laughs> single time I'm still scared by it. Like, right. how does that happen? Is that 
magic is that the fact that John Carpenter knows what he's doing. I don't know. It's for so me. It's why I'm such a big fan of movies. It's also the way that 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 I think Kurt Russell plays it, because he's almost playing it at that point. Like he's starting to doubt: Is it going to work? He's even sort of talking as he's doing it, yeah. and you're not sure. And he's as like he jumps back just as much as as anybody. So he's playing it to the point. Like because you're right, everyone's thinking, "Oh, this might not work." You know, he's he's just sort of spinning his wheels here, and then all of a sudden, boom. You know, and I think he's as taken off guard of it by it as as anybody. That hey, you know, this it did work, um, and and it really uh, the way that the way that Kurt Russell plays that, and this is something that I, I remember, <clears throat> and I, I'm probably the I'm guessing I'm the oldest among all of us. I remember seeing Kurt Russell in the Disney movies when he was a teenager. He wore tennis um, shoes. Yeah, he right. He he wore tennis shoes. I remember seeing the movie <laughs> Super Dad. In the theater with Kurt, with Kurt, with a young Kurt Russell, Bruno Kirby, and um, oh god, I, I can't remember the. But there were like there's a there's a group of them who went on to make you know to, to, to become like a sort of mainstream actors. Um, and I and to see him first off, uh, you know, Escape from New York. Uh, the, this guy I knew from all these kid movies. All of a sudden, he's now you know with the tattoo and everything. And then in this movie, it really was a, a, a kind of a shock at the time. It's funny to think of that now, when you think of of, of him in these films and where his career went. Like thinking but, of him as Whitey and Follow Me Boys, and then to see him, yeah, exactly. Him. <laughs> you, you, I, I, that's how I was used to. Him. I was used to him from from these Disney movies that that played on. Some of them I saw in the theater. Some of them I, I saw on TV. And and you're looking, and and you know, the first time I saw him, well. The first thing he did was a, another one with Carpenter was the miniseries Elvis, which oh, I know right. that my parents watched when that came on. And I remember watching and I said, hey, that's the guy from the from the Disney movies. I said it then. You He's know, a I huge Elvis was, fan, too. A huge Elvis fan. Yeah. And I guess it was like nine years old or something at the time. And, and so he did that. And then after that, it was Escape from New York and, and, and the thing. And you're just like, it's like, wow, he's he's, you know, it, it almost seemed like he was trying at the time. You got the feeling he was trying a little too hard to, to, to get to break the persona of Disney by going sure. this far with it, by taking it to this degree. But now you watch and you think he was the perfect one for it. There was nobody better for Escape from New York or for the thing than Kurt yeah. Russell. Snake and the, the sad thing is he hasn't done a ton of stuff since this era that I love. He's done right. good stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the last thing I really loved him in that I can recall off the top of my head is Breakdown. Which oh, is man. maybe not a horror movie, but if 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 I was a woman, that would be like my idea of a horror movie. That scares uh, me. Yeah. To I'm happy to call that a horror movie. It's it's really frightening, movie. really good. Yeah. And then the I best like part Death about Proof. it, I love him in Death Proof. Oh yeah, and, and oh, that's what I'm saying. Proof like, there's other good that. movies with him, but but not that he carries maybe like this. Right. And right. the best part of Breakdown is that there's no one liner at the end. And in this movie, that's like the one thing, the one thing I don't like is the one liner he says to the alien, because that kind of stuff is so cheesy to me. I can't right. stand it. That it's was like, big in the, oh, that was, that was, was the eighties. Yeah, that was, that was the eighties. You know, the, the, yeah. that was the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, coming up with a, with a, with a I quick, think it feels way more organic than Arnold Schwarzenegger line though. It's just like, well, yeah, no, screen, yeah. buddy. well, somebody, uh, I don't mind that, you know, quote it. I yeah, don't remember what he it is. says. Q two, yeah. yells it. <laughs> F U two. Yeah, it's it's not as it's maybe more organic, but I actually feel like it's comes out of nowhere. There hasn't been a lot of dialogue for a little bit, 
it bursts forth. It sounds like they're trying to get a swear in there for, you know, for <laughs> the fans. It, it just doesn't work. When Arnold Schwarzenegger well, it's killed everybody he knows. It's, it's just killed everybody and ruined his plan. He had a plan to kill it. It kills all his buddies. They're all dead now. But he's got his dino first. Well, the, so. thing, <laughs> the thing roars at him, you know, it's like, Rawr! and he's like, yeah, well, if you do. And he, oh, he's so the <laughs> guys, I would have lost it early on. Even with the dog running up to me, I would have been like, F you dog, F you dog. That's one of the really amazing things about this is if, if, if uh, you, you look at that and you're watching it and when that dog comes running up and the, Norwegian is shooting at it. You're like, God, take that guy out. He's he's dangerous. He's shooting at people. And and like halfway through the movie, it's like, wow, they they should have let him kill that dog. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, you've got uh, the president of the United States himself shoots the guy, right? I mean, I, Donald right. Moffat. He's president. Right, of the right, States. right. <laughs> Jack Ryan. Movie. Anyway, I I love him as an actor. Oh, he and was I, in the right stuff. Well, he was yeah. Lyndon oh, Johnson he's so that, that was that. He was so so funny. And there's something very regal and presidential about the guy. So when he's in this room and he's kind of, you know, first he breaks out the gun and shoots this this Norwegian guy, and you're thinking, okay, this guy's he breaks this window with his gun, which is such a cool Western vibe, and then he puts this guy down because he's threatening his camp, and you think that guy's the leader. That guy, you know, and then the whole time you're thinking, oh well, no wonder it's going to be him because why wouldn't it be him? It's going to be this guy because he's the one that you look to for leadership. I think the addition of him into this movie kind of gives it a little bit of that nuance that comes with having a like a patriarch over a group of people. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you can't give that to Wilford Brimley because he's clearly a little bit of a weirdo and he goes nuts. And so you're not rooting for him a lot of the time. You're actually, in my opinion, you see Moffat and you're thinking, I can trust this guy. He looks like my best friend's grandfather. Like, right. you know, he's a good guy. Right. And, it's and, funny because he doesn't come off as a great leader in this movie, though. You know, because no. he sort of lets people push him around a little bit. But I agree with you. You know, he's, he's, he is one of the ones where you, you, you almost want to trust him. You, know, right. you almost and want him you to be one of the good guys. You feel like at the beginning of the movie that he's going to be this great leader. Right. Because he, he's the only one that, like, puts an end to whatever this chaos is going around. You've got this dog who's... It's just a dog, right? What, what's the worst? It's got rabies. It's Cujo. I know right. that would terrify you, Jason. But yes. And then you've got, <laughs> you've got this guy speaking a different language firing a, a rifle. And the only guy to really do anything about it is Donald Moffat. So you're thinking, this guy's in charge. I trust him. I've seen him in other movies. I know that he's legit. And then after a while, you're like, he's tied to a couch or whatever. And you're like, I hope that he's the thing. Because I want, <laughs> I want McCready to put a flamethrower in his face. <laughs> awesome oh so as we start to wrap up this review you guys uh just two last things for you here real quick number one this came from uh our friend andy i believe now josh if you said this and not andy please correct me but um way back when we reviewed these movies and at one point andy said that he thought it was interesting that there is in this movie there's death outside obviously because you cannot survive outside and there's death inside. And there are two kinds of deaths. The death outside is death by cold. And the death inside, like if, if you're going to kill the thing, it's going to be death by fire. And um, I, I think that's kind of neat, those those conflicting death things. And then yeah. I get a, a very interesting. 
Was that Andy, Josh, that said that? I don't remember who said it. Okay, it I didn't want to. It definitely wasn't me. I didn't want to take that from you. And then the other thing is, um, I get a really quick, random, dumb Wilford Brimley story. So my wife, when she was little, she went to this restaurant. It was like a Golden Corral type of place where it's all you can eat. And Wilford Brimley was there eating and she was little she's like seven and she took over her napkin to him and he signed it <laughs> that's all the end with the gravy stains on it <laughs> yeah that seems like the kind of he seems like the kind of person that would go to like a chuckarama or like an all-you-can-eat place and <laughs> yes where, where are you gonna wow. get more biscuits yeah exactly. he had like a lot of health problems i think yeah, no. big time. There you He's go. He's the yeah. spokesperson for diabetes, so I would right. say diabetes. One of those diseases. <laughs> you guys are killing me. Okay, so uh, by the way, this the thing, according to my numbers here, it had a $35 million budget, and it earned $27 million theatrically, and uh, initially speaking, of course. Uh-huh. It was a huge failure, and now it's considered a classic film and a lot and there were critics that have reversed their review in fact didn't roger ebert totally did, reverse his review it. on this movie yep. yeah yeah but I, it's like we talked about this happens i think it'll happen with chappy on our review of chappy <laughs> you know most of us were saying and i jason i know how you feel about it but <laughs> well jason's us, the guy who's going to reverse his review <laughs> no i hope so <laughs> i don't think most I of ever us will. are saying that this movie is incredible how come it's not getting the love and Josh, I think you're the one that brought it up that said, well, we'll see. And it, probably in 20 years, it'll be it'll be a beloved movie and, and no, recognized for the Blade, merits. Like Blade Runner. Yeah, yep, exactly. There's, or The there's Thing. So, there's so many instances of you read people's reviews of, of, of what ended up being classic movies. You know, I think Roger Ebert said one of the biggest regrets he had was when he reviewed The Graduate, you know, with the, with the Simon and Garfunkel music. He said the music yeah. was forgettable. You know, and and that that happens. I mean, you know, that's it's, the funniest thing. You know, <laughs> and how many millions it, of albums later? Right, exactly. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that it's funny because you, you had mentioned Chappie too, and from the ads I saw, I said, "Wow, that's something I really, really want to see." And as I as I was seeing the reviews coming in, I was almost a little saddened because I'm like, "Wow, that that's a shame," because. You know, I, I, I did want to see it. And so when you guys talked about it again, you know, to go back to the sci-fi podcast, you know, that episode, um, when you guys were talking about it, saying how really strong it was, it, it sort of rejuvenated me. It's like, good. I was glad to hear that because it was one that really caught my eye originally. You know, and it was almost, it was almost, it was just sort of disheartening to see the reviews yeah. coming in. So yeah. I'm now really anxious to, to see it because, and I've heard other fans saying, Wow, this is a really, you know, this is a good movie. I don't know, I, I, and I don't know what it is with with critics. It's almost as if, uh, and I don't know if it's really with 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 Bombcamp at this point because I know Elysium also had some some detractors, but it's like people are poised, waiting for the failure. Right. You know, there are people waiting for Quentin Tarantino to stumble. There are people waiting. Uh, you know, there were people who loved it when when Cars came out and they could pile on Pixar. Yeah, you know, yeah. Th- there are just people who are like, we we've got to take the air out of their balloons, and I never really understood that philosophy <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because why can't they just all be great? They just want to well, get high off that helium. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, in a, in a world where movies like Grown Ups and Grown Ups Two generates the kind of inflow that it does, right. I can't help but think that for the most part, uh, high concept dies the second it hits. A lot of uh, reviewers 
fingers, you know, when they start typing on their computers. High concept mm-hmm. movies, and the thing isn't super high concept, but it, I would consider it a high concept idea. It, movies like this oftentimes are too much for a lot of people, like we alluded to earlier, that just want to go have fun. They don't want right. to think about it. They don't want to. They don't want to put effort into the movie because what fun is that? And there are times where that is exactly why I go to the movies because I want to laugh or I want to just leave saying I can't believe Tom Cruise held on to the outside of an airplane for reals. Like that. That's <laughs> great. I don't need uh-huh. to believe any of that. But there's times where I go to the movie and if I'm not challenged at least a little bit, then I feel like they failed me a little. You know. Right. Well, this film to me is fun, and that challenging, you know, those those elements you're talking about to me are part of what makes it fun. I can understand why, in the wake of something like ET, it wouldn't seem, it might seem like the dark, depressing thing nobody's interested in at the time. But um, and Blade Runner's the same way. People wanted more Han Solo. They got something very different in Deckard. So, you know, I, I get that. But um, I don't know. It's a great. It's this is a great movie. All right. Yeah. Well, let's go into our. Uh final ratings and recommendations here on this. I'm going to start with Kill Bill Kill. What do you rate the thing from 1982? Yeah, I just want to wrap up with my rating that um, just a couple things that weren't said. The music is so good. The opening music I cannot begin to tell you Mm -hmm. right off the bat. I just was so sucked in. And also this this movie, it's like a screenwriter's rule um, that I believe, I don't know I mean, good writers use it. It is so not used anymore. I, so many movies just forget, throw this out the window. And it's get in late and get out early. Now, not only does yeah. this film do that, but every, almost every scene do, is doing that. Or at least you don't know what's going on. You, you have no idea what's happening. You're constantly playing catch-up. Or, or even when you go to the Norwegian's destroyed camp, it is so like it's a puzzle. You can't figure out really. I mean, you got clues. So to me, you're just on the edge of your seat. Everything, tone, pacing. I mean, some of this stuff was said. It's keeping you on your toes. It is so good. The characters, I believe, are realistic. They're acting. Um, realistic given the situation, the the sets, the props, the wardrobe. I'm sorry, but I, I have to just rant my passion and love. <laughs> you know, the story unfolds and develops so naturally and perfect. And I know this will sound dumb, but above all, this will sound crazy. But the lighting is so amazing. You guys have no idea. I'm such a just a stickler about night light when you when there's night scenes. There, most people are so lazy about it, and most people don't care, and that's fine. But for some reason, it takes me out. And when I see night scenes that are lit with with what is at least perceived as light that is natural or that could be there or at least it's not overlit like the moon is like the biggest spotlight at all times <laughs> in right. every place i just just drives me nuts there's shadows like everyone's got like a high noon shadow you're like boo i hate this <laughs> anyway <laughs> everything is top notch in this film and i can't recommend it high enough it is a 10 for me i use this as an example for everything. In fact, I, when I write, when I any any genre, I really turn to this story and the way that it is, especially mysteries or horror. Um, when I want to see how is a natural way to develop it or keep people focused in, I really use this as my go-to um, because I think it is so well done, executed perfectly. Um, I have bought it in every format, and I will continue to do so. And um, yes. you know. That's that's what I think about it. 
Okay. Can we talk about the score for just one second since we didn't talk about that? Absolutely, really but I just yep. want to double check. So Kill Bill Kill, it's a 10. Is it, do you tell people to buy it if they don't own I, it? Yeah, if you if, if, if you are not, I mean, I cannot imagine that you just listen to, you know, an hour and a half, I'm guessing, of us just drooling and Googling over <laughs> every little thing. And yeah, I mean, what, what is it that you don't, if you don't want to buy it, I don't, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. Can you can you give your review that you gave for Twelve Monkeys? That that's my favorite recommendation of yours that that William gives on the Sci Fi podcast. Do you remember what it was? No, <laughs> sorry. Keep it I... under your pillow. Give it secret kisses. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. was when I checked out for the rest of that episode. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, Josh, what do you have to say about the score here? Uh, just that, you know, it's interesting because Carpenter comes from a totally low-budget, no-budget indie background, and this is his first studio film, so he kind of goes all out. He keeps his, you know, core collaborators, you know, with Dean Cundy. He still uses this kid, Rob Boutin, who's, you know, other than the Howling, hasn't done a lot of work. So he's still working with his friends and stuff. He still brings Kurt Russell on. That's cool. But one of his kind of little things that he t- he gives himself is he he hires his hero, Ennio Morricone to do the score. And then he's not super happy with it when he gets it back, (laughs) which I think is hilarious. And he ends up rewriting some of the music for the film. So uh, Ennio Morricone is credited with the score. And there are some things, some, you know, the kind of jazzier moments with just tons of notes that you can really tell this is Morricone. But there are other parts where people and I've, you know, I was this person, I think last time we reviewed the movie, I'm like, what? This sounds like a John Carpenter score, though. And there are moments that, yeah, that's because there are several key moments like that opening music of just the done, 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 that it's Carpenter, you know, and he also rewrite the Halloween score. Well, he wrote the Halloween score and he wrote most of his music up until this film and He's a guy who's not trained as a musician. He taught himself to play keyboards. It's probably why it works. Yeah, he's, right. he's an outsider artist, and that's the same with Rob Boutine with the makeup effects. He's kind of a guy who's an outsider artist, so he's doing stuff that the average person wouldn't think of, and so they're coming up with something kind of unique. But yeah, uh, it's like the idea of my five-year-old could paint this. Well, yes. then give your five-year-old a paintbrush. Yeah, <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he calls himself the master of all keyboards, which I think is amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, he doesn't read music even to this day, um, but he's, he's written most of the scores. And I think it's just hilarious that he has Ennio Marconi, who's one of the most celebrated uh, musicians, composers of all cinema history. And then he rewrites his music. <laughs> I think that's so funny. And he, you know, and he does it to great effect. He did an excellent job. And the pairing of those, the music of these two guys really makes, again, for something very unique and just very memorable. Yes. Well done. Yeah, I agree with you, Josh. Thank you. Now, uh, what do you rate John Carpenter's The Thing? I give it a 10. I say buy it and give it secret kisses. <laughs> That's got to be a new thing. I love that, William. That's really funny. Yeah, th- this is a 10 out of 10 for me, too. I call it a masterpiece without hesitation. This is a buy. It is in my top 10 all-time favorite horror movies. In fact, it's my number five, actually, out, out of that list. And... I just love it because I think it is the total package in terms of a horror movie because 
everything is working together. Like I said, everyone is pulling off their jobs, like the performances, the special effects, the story, the atmosphere, like the settings are great. Uh, the score we just talked about. Everything pulls it together where you can actually get lost in this movie. And I think that's why we jump every time during the blood test scene because we are sucked into this movie. It draws us in and it affects us on, on a deep level. Like there are some universal fears being tapped here in this film. It's a masterpiece. Absolutely buy it. Must see. Dr. Shock, what do you say? Um, <clears throat> well, for my review of this, I, I'm going to review this how I think others, how the listeners would review this, you mm -hmm. know, to, to look at this film. Um, okay. I'm, I'm going to kind of put myself in their, in their stamp, you know, ones who aren't as into eighties movies. Okay. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's a 10. It's, it's a classic. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> um, you got to buy it. You have to own it. And I agree. Own it in every format and just watch it. <laughs> over and over again even if the, you're going back and retroactively buying those formats like go back at the laser disc go back right at the exactly yes. exactly yep yeah absolutely if, if you can find if you can find the original prints of the film buy those <laughs> yes i agree okay matroid what do you say buddy it's a two it's an avoid <laughs> yeah. no uh i mean that that's a dumb joke for obvious reasons uh, John Carpenter gives you permission to be afraid every time you watch this. I think that's really cool. A lot of times directors, they impose too much of themselves on a movie, in my opinion. And Ridley Scott's done that of late. And yet early on, it was very effective in letting people enjoy the movie. And, he, and I hate to use the term give them permission, but there is an element of that that feels real to me. Whereas now it's like you get a Ridley Scott movie and he's kind of telling you what you should like. Um, and John Carpenter lets everyone know, hey, this is your movie. Interpret it how you will. Read it how you will. Love it how you will. But anyone that doesn't give this a 10, myself included, I give this a 10, is crazy. It's a 10, and you have to own this movie. And you have to own it um, on the best possible format. And right now, I think that's Blu-ray. That's so gorgeous. So um, you, you got to own it. 10 for 10 for sure. Okay, and that concludes our review of John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. All right, and at this point in episode 54, we're going to move into our feature review of The Thing from 2011. 48 hours ago, we found something quite remarkable. What'd they find? There's a structure. In Antarctica. And a specimen. Really? Touching down. This is Kate Lloyd, Columbia Paleontology. Let me show you why you flew 10,000 miles. We estimate it's been here 100,000 years. I'm going to take a tissue sample. Do you really think that's a good idea? Yes, I do. You, my friends, will all be immortalized as the people who made this discovery. So, do you guys remember that Sweden, oh wait, I mean Norwegian <laughs> research camp in John Carpenter's The Thing? Do yes. you guys remember that? Sure do. Yeah. Yes. Are you listening, Wolfman? That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Matra, do you know what that's from? Uh, I do not. Oh, The Office when Dwight is trying to read scary stories to children. Anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Um, 
Yeah, so this is the story of what happens to those Swedes. I mean, Norwegians. I think I think that's how you say it. Norwegians? No, wait. How do you say it? Norwegians. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anyway, so this is the story that happens to those guys. Now, that Hold was on, Just I in my defense, they do call them... Somebody calls them the Swedes at some point, right? Even though they are Norwegian? Yeah. Okay, well, in, that's what I thought. In John Carpenter's a thing when... Um, you know, Kurt uh, Russell's character first goes there. He says that line, yeah. something about the Swedes, and the doctor's like, the Nor- they're Norwegians. Yeah, right? yeah. So I, well, I, did, I, did, I did the same thing, so I thought you were mocking me, because I did oh, the same no. thing when I was... No, oh, did, wait, you do it, did you do it for real? Yeah, I did it for real, because <laughs> I was... I, I do that all the time, too. I don't know what it is. I feel like a dumb American sometimes, but, like, honestly, I always, like, mix up those two. And but they're all the same, right? Like they're all the exact same. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking language, of- everything. I mean, they're they do overlap. Just you know, and in fact, some of these actors are Norwegian and some are Swedish, and they speak you know. There you have it. Both languages, but still, be culturally sensitive. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't pull that on people from the UK. For example, there's a guy um, here in my neighborhood who's from. Uh, Ireland, right? And mm-hmm. like a fool, I asked him if he was Scottish because I thought if I get if I have this wrong, then he's gonna be really ticked. So I'm like, "Are you Scottish?" And and like <laughs> he went off on me, and I'm like, "Well, it's the UK, right?" And then he went off on me a little more, and I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, probably a bad move. I'm like, awesome. man, uh, Josh, Josh is not finished with me in his training <laughs> yet, so. I've got a long way to go. Anyway, speaking of uh, dumb or ignorant Americans, which I totally am, um, (laughs) I looked at IMDb and my brain said, I don't think so. And I do have a memory of Wolfman explaining this to me at one point. In fact, I think we saw it in theaters together and he explained to me like who they were. Who I was going to try to attempt who directed it, who wrote it, but I can't read the names. So can I just hand this off to Josh to do a little bit of background? The director's name is Matthias von Heineken, and he's uh, Dutch, actually, which is why I know how to pronounce his last name. But um, he had only done a short film, I believe, before this. He hadn't done a lot of feature work, as far as I remember. Um, but he did go after the you know actual Norwegian actors, and one of the guys he cast is amazing. Well, they're all great, but they're all like big movie stars in Norway. And um, the guy who plays Edvant, no, Edvard Volner, the mm. kind of yes. cooler older guy, he's kind of like supposed to be like the Brad Pitt of, of Norway. And then yes. the guy who's, uh, who plays Jonas or Jonas, he is um, one of, he was in one of my favorite films from last year. And I know Jay liked it too. Uh, the French production called, help me out here, Jay. Uh, give me a little more on it. Uh, it was the Avalanche drama movie. Oh, Damn yeah. Yeah. Example. Force majeure. Force majeure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in that movie and is excellent. But anyway, that, I mean, all these actors are Norwegian or Swedish and they're all big names in their country. And so it's kind of like an embarrassment of riches to have them all here in the same film. And I think it's a little lame that they had to cast a few Americans as the leads <laughs> within huh. this excellent cast of international actors. But you know, they got to 
do what they have to do. And the fact that the studios even allowed them to cast all these Norwegians is amazing that they even actually went through with it. And so that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's also it's also really cool that the film was actually shot on 35 millimeter. I mean, this is 2011. Do you guys? I thought it was gone. I didn't know they were even printing or making 35 millimeter still at this point. They were then, oh. yeah. Now oh. it would be a little trickier, but um, the, yeah. The crazy thing also about this movie is they did a lot of practical effects. Unfortunately, they did a lot of CGI on top of those practical effects to like make it cool, and so. It almost spoils the fact that they even did it practically. I think like they said like 75% of the effects in the movie were practical, mm-hmm. but you don't get that sense from watching it because oh, everything no. is like is like sweetened up with a little CGI. In fact, I'd just like to be the, the one to say this. <laughs> with my untrained eye, it almost appears as if everything that was practical in the 1982 version, they have done it all with cgi that's what it appears but you're saying that's not true it's actually 75 percent practical yeah they did a lot of practical makeup effects they did all the fire was practical i mean it was and the fire looks fake that's the crazy thing about it when i saw it in the theater i was like this fire looks terrible and then when i got the blu-ray and watched it i thought oh this is actually fire <laughs> but what they did is they would have someone in a you know in a, a burn suit and then they would go in and they would CGI the character on top of that person. So they're creating a few flake, fake f- flames and the character look around the body, even though the majority of the fire in the frame is practical, it still looks totally fake because there's that cartoonish element in the middle of the frame. So it's almost... Oh, oh please, Matt, sorry. I was going to say, Josh, do you mind if I ask you, is that something they do? Is it, is it an intentional thing? Is it done with lighting? Is it done with... Some of the post-production, uh, I'm trying to think of the phrase, kind of lost it. Uh, you, you know, like some of the technique they use in actually in getting the final result for the film, because it's almost like everybody's so used to CGI that seeing something that's not CGI may even look strange to some people. Well, I know. I mean, that's definitely, you know, there are a lot, definitely a large group of people who think that the 82 version looks dated, and I'm sure the studio people were atop that list of people who thought it looked dated and wanted more modern moving monster. But, um, you know, the filmmakers really wanted to, it to be practical. And so I, I imagine that was a compromise where they said, we're going to do as much as we can practically, but don't worry. We'll throw in a giant tentacle and CGI <laughs> that honestly ruins the shot. Like if you're a fan of the original, so, agree, totally uh, agree. It's rough. it's rough. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm 100% with you. Now, Dr. Shock, this, yeah. you just recently saw this version for the very first time, and I'd love to hear your well, uh, initial just, thoughts. You're, you're talking just recently. It it just ended. <laughs> oh, okay. I finished it maybe <laughs> five minutes ago. Okay. Wow. Well, hot off the yeah. press, everybody. Uh, this is a off, yeah. horror movie podcast exclusive. I mean, Dr. My, Shock. my initial reaction is <laughs> I'm was I was pleasantly surprised by by the movie to be honest with you. I mean I, I it's not that I had heard bad things about it and I really wasn't avoiding it for any you know good reason uh, other than just I never got around to seeing it. Um, but I I did I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty badass to be honest with you. <laughs> You know, I, and yes, the effects, uh, you can tell, yes, that there there are, you know, the, the CGI in there, but 
um, the, the, the scenes with the creature were still effective. A few of them you could kind of see coming. It's tricky, dude. You know, but mm, yeah, mm-hmm. I did. I did. I enjoyed the movie. I did overall. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, now, William, back to you real quick. Did you get to finish your premise on this? Um, yeah, well, I can get into it more. I you guess. just let you me ramble. Me <laughs> no, and we love that part, but I'm just wondering if, if you had more to say before we open it up more. As far okay, as- well, I mean, you, you've got John Carpenter's The Thing as it opens up with um, a helicopter, you know, chasing or hunting down, shooting at a, at a you know, a, a dog, and you have no clue what's going on. You When you find out where they came from, it's just a like a war zone has gone off. Everyone's either gone or dead or burnt. And there's all sorts of, you know, clues, horror, you know, horror clues, horror, you know, I don't, I don't want to ruin too much, I guess, but there's all sorts of mysteries going on. And this movie basically tells the story of this mystery, right? And so you have these researchers that were there that, and we saw the footage in John Carpenter's the thing. And, and we actually see what they uh, is it? It's not unearthed. It's uniced. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. They yeah, thawed. <laughs> so I mean, to me, let's. That's the premise, right? And of course, I guess you know. I do want to end with a question that's really been bugging me a little bit. So I know it's technically a prequel, mm-hmm. but for me, and and I'm I'm kind of wondering, but I I guess I'm revealing how I feel. But since it kind of unfolds pretty much the same way as far as kind of beats. Mm-hmm. It, as far as John Carpenter's, it, it feels like a remake, yes. even though it's technically a prequel. But I was wondering what you guys thought. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 I agree because they, they, they reach the same conclusions. Uh, it's like, you know, they do the same sort of research. They reach the same conclusions. You, you, get, the, um, you get the tension. You get the mistrust that, that you get in the, in the first film. Um, you get a few surprises as to, you know, where you, the, you're not expecting something to happen so um i can see what you i see what you mean uh absolutely where, where that you could look at this as a remake in fact i i would go so far as to say that you could take like you know plot this out with story beats and lay it on top of the 1982 version and it pretty much lines up exactly so it is a prequel and simultaneously a remake but um matroid how do you feel about this well, that was actually my understanding is that some of that was intentional. So when this came out, they were debating whether they wanted to actually remake John Carpenter's or if they wanted to give it uh, a sequel or a prequel, especially because prequels are kind of the in thing uh, over the last, what, 15 years or so. Uh, um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's intentional that it has some of those uh, I know this is a phrase that sometimes people hate, but some of the elements of a remake and some of the elements mm-hmm. of a, a prequel. Mm-hmm. And yet um, it feels to me like it's a prequel to John Carpenter's The Thing, and it's a remake of a large portion of uh, The Thing from Another World. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Because so much of what they do in this is almost shot for shot the same, or at least – uh, storyboard the same as thing from another world. So to me, it was like kind of a mix of both, which I, I mean, I'm kind of on the same side as, as uh, doc shock here. I was mildly surprised, maybe even fairly surprised at how effective it was and how much I found myself enjoying it. 
it, I was prepared to hate the movie because of my love for John Carpenter's. And yet here we are. And, and I'd also heard the, is it a remake? Is it a sequel? It's both, or it's a prequel. And it, and I never understood how that could be possible. So it upset me that people were making that, um, that claim or that assertion. And yet I can kind of see where it is a bag of tricks. It's kind of like you take all your GI Joe guys, you mix their arms up and their legs <laughs> and their heads. You still get a GI Joe guy at the end. He just looks a little different. Well, and and to, to speak specifically to your question, I think the answer to it, if you're trying to technically define how that's possible and it's very simple, I think, and it's that, the human interaction with this alien and the alien's behavior in general, it follows the same path. I mean, you, you run into the same scenarios when the humans happen to discover that this thing has this ability to do this amazing transformation. And then you get into all the mistrust, the paranoia, the testing. I mean, this has the testing sequence as well. And by the way, we're, you know, we're in spoilers for all this, so you guys can talk freely about all that. So I think that's how, um, I guess, if you were to look at it within the world of the film, how could the exact same things happen? I think it's just a lot of the things that occur, occur very um, organically or by human nature, the way we would go about addressing this alien. Can I build a little bit on what you guys were talking about? My understanding was that these guys were, they were supposed to make a uh, remake. They were supposed to reboot the thing. Right. And the filmmakers didn't want to do that. They said, can we try to make this part of the same universe? Because they too revered Carpenter's movie. And I think they did something kind of brilliant here. I think they pulled off a big coup because they were allowed to do that with the understanding that they would take the roadmap of Carpenter's film and turn in something that had all of those same story beats that the studio wanted remade, but still allowing that to be a prequel. And in doing that, I think they created something really unique. You know, we've talked about the star Wars prequels and how big a disappointment were for everyone. And I think in recreating some of those same beats, they gave it that sameness that the prequels lacked. They, it made it feel like, oh, this is, this is the same thing. Like this is kind of, and that's kind of what you know a lot of people want from sequels. They want more of the same, but just a little bit different. And I yeah. think it weirdly delivered that by you know being also a re- remake at the same time. Well, you you know, get all these little answers to those mysteries that William brought up. Some are more effective than others. Some are totally lame. Like I would say the axe is not done well, for instance, but others are really satisfying to me as a longtime fan of the original. I walked into this theater with so much trepidation and left almost skipping when I left the theater. I was so (laughs) happy about it. It's funny that you, you bring up uh, like the feel of being in John Carpenter's universe a little bit because so on our, I think it's the last sci-fi podcast episode we were on where you and I and William discussed uh, the Star Wars trailer and all that. And William, I think, nailed it perfectly by saying that the prequels are almost their own universe, like their own feel, their own thing. And then you've got like Star Wars proper, which is its own its own thing again. And this new Star Wars looks like it's kind of going to be more like the old one. It creates a little bit of a of a disconnect and a, and a lack of satisfaction, I think, for most people. And I completely agree that with this, 
even though it's clearly made now, you know, some of the CGI is a little weak and some of those things, they tried very hard to make it feel like it belonged in the same, I mean, just miles from the other outpost. And they were extremely successful down to the way that they I'm made really, it look I'm like really 1982. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And it was, I didn't feel like they were stealing or mocking. It felt more like not even an homage, but like we have to do this. It's the only way we can make this movie and, and feel okay about it. And I thought it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah. yeah, the fact that it is a period piece and something I really appreciate. I, I've heard people criticize this and I think they totally are missing the point. Some people are saying, you know, for a 2011 CGI movie, some of that CGI looked a little bit rough, but it's like, no, they were trying to match the quality of the CGI in this with the practical effects in the 1982 version. That's my thought on it. I don't know yeah. if people agree with that, but I mean, I do have problems with the monster, like the movement, especially. I honestly hate the last. I love the closing credits. Let me say that the closing credits are my favorite part of the movie, but mm-hmm. the last ten minutes, lead fifteen minutes leading up to that is terrible. I think. Like, I hate everything that happens inside the spaceship. I hate seeing that monster in the spaceship. I just wish that wasn't in the movie. And I kind of pretend it's not in my little imagination so that I can enjoy it more. (laughs) And and I think I said this when we reviewed it on considering the sequels, but when that monster attacks them in the billiard room or whatever, it looks like they released the Kraken in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. It just doesn't look like it It doesn't fit. It comes from the same universe. Yeah, I agree. So that's a bummer. But you know, at the same time, the, the monster from the 1982 film was a little bit inert. And I think it would be hard to sell a modern audience on this monster just stands here and transforms for like 20 minutes and you could easily like just leave, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and that happens in the back room when she goes to get the key and the monster kind of tricks her. um, And it starts transforming. It takes so long that there's usually ample time to escape if you're paying attention to the transformation, but yeah, I don't know. It's and, it's tricky. I don't I don't envy their position, but I think they did almost as good a job as you could. I thought their reactions were better than a lot of horror movies, though. You know, you talk about how there's ample time to escape, which is you weren't wrong. I mean, there, she just kind of sat there, and then you got to think if that happened in real life, I would do one of two things. I would either run extremely quick the other direction, or to quote Jay, who quoted Chandler being kind of. There'd be like a me-shaped hole in the wall behind me, um, <laughs> or or I would be paralyzed with fear, which is a very real uh, thing that people go through in, in frightening moments. You know, if they see a car swerve off the road and there's trouble, they just they don't know how to help because they're paralyzed with fear. So yeah, but at least the reactions in this felt a little authentic and more Carpenterian than uh, I expected they would. I mean, it, to oh. me at least, it felt like they were these people in this situation believed that there was an alien there with them. And it wasn't like, huh? All right. Well, I'm going to let this unfold and see how risky it is. You know, I, I I don't know. Some of that didn't bother me as much as maybe I think it would in other movies. I don't want to put you on the spot, but didn't you hate this movie? (laughs) William? Um, I, if I got into a passionate state you know when you kind of like get riled up and you're excited. I would use the word hate in the in that state. Yeah, <laughs> I don't feel hate in my heart right now though. <laughs> okay. you know, like, like when people hate another team that isn't their team or something like that. Like it's not true hatred so much as it's like 
you hate them because maybe they beat your team. Is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, I get. I've never actually seen a sports team play, and I don't know what people actually <laughs> do. So I'm assuming that's correct. Okay, we'll just say it is. So, so okay. what what don't you like about this one, then, William? Okay, yeah, I was actually going to try to focus on what I did like, so I didn't come off as the big <laughs> Debbie Downer. Um, I guess you know, like it's, it's uh, valuable. The big, the just that Wolfman brought up something that I think really represents not only. A problem of the ending but for me it's kind of a little taste of what i think the whole film represents which is um i always think i want to see the inside of a spaceship um or maybe like i want to see someone's home world that we're always talking about but every time i do i'm so disappointed and then i think to myself why did i think yeah. i was going to be play, like pleased with that why did i think I it was going to turn out okay and i kind of felt like in my mind, I had created something so perfect in John Carpenter's The Thing, and it was so magical, and then it was kind of shown to me, and I was like, uh, mine was better. In my mind, it was much better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the first problem. The next problem, if since you put me on the spot, is I really feel like there was a missed opportunity here for me because I didn't know any of this backstory of what they were always going to do or plan to do. I just thought, you know, hey, maybe this will be – um, a little different scenarios, uh, you know. Yeah, it's still going to be isolated, maybe, or or hunted off, hunted off one by one. But I thought maybe we could use a few different things, like maybe a different pet. Maybe like Polly wants a cracker, <laughs> the hand's gone, or or maybe it's you know. I, I mean, sweet. I mean, some different pet, and of course, even maybe an homage to the thing we, of course, we didn't like. But maybe maybe a, anything else that was alive. I mean, it could be anything, and I thought they missed. It's still dogs. It's still, you know, and I, th I think they're homaging everything, so that's fine. I and then the last thing I also really hoped in my mind, I was like, you know, they could have done like a thirty days of night situation here. Like maybe the next remote town is where it made it by the second act, and then you get the second and third act to be like a whole new scenario. And I know everyone's gonna hate me for that, but at the end of the day, I kind of just saw the same movie again, and I didn't think it was mm -hmm. as good. And so I kind of – now that I've seen that, and so now that I know what they did, I kind of wish they did something different. I, to I, I totally feel you on that because honestly, even though I do like the film, ultimately, it's really unnecessary when it comes down to it because it is such a similar story. Same story beats. The practical still works in 1982 version. It, it's still a great film, and this is really an unnecessary film. So I get Not where you're you coming from. you just want from. more of what you like, though. Yeah, but you can yeah, watch the first one again. You want more of what you like. Yeah, it doesn't have to. Yeah, but to you get the Norwegians. It's still fun, right? It's fun. Right. There's, there's someone there's who loves Swedish, Norwegian. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what? What? No. Okay. I, I mean, I I love seeing I love seeing more, and I love seeing like, oh, I've been to this Norwegian camp already. I want to see what it was like in its heyday. Like, it's almost like a little flashback. I don't know. I love all those little moments <laughs> and seeing how all the puzzle pieces are going to fit together. Um, to create, you know, the 82 version. But not only that, I would suggest that they are different in that they have different goals. Where The first film, it still has the cold, it still has the isolation, it still has the paranoia, but to a lesser degree in the film, pales in comparison to the 82 version, we'll judge it on those standards. But if you take into account that they have different goals, whereas the first film, or, you know, the 82 film, the alien is is trying to sneak around, be as hidden as possible, 
rebuild its ship and, you know, gather what it needs in order to escape. This movie is just on a killing spree to get back to its ship that's in good shape. So, like, and, and there's no need for the ambiguity in term, you know, as much as there is in the first one. Now, you know, when you get to 82, it's been through this whole process and it needs to hide more. It realizes how badly things can go if it's not more careful. And so you get to see it. And so then, I don't know, to me, that's an evolution of its character. Yeah, well, see, I think I actually agree with a lot of what you just said, and I think that's true. But I still believe that me and I think a lot of other people, maybe even you, Wolfman, would have loved this film more if they had done the prequel thing and explained the Norwegians, but also they they hadn't matched up and aligned the story beats. I, I see what you're saying about the goals being different, but it's still such a similar film. I just wish they had gone a different direction. So you kind of have a different thing, so to speak. <laughs> no pun intended. My favorite thing that they copied and redid was the test. Because to me, as we mentioned before, the test scene is one of the coolest elements of these movies that the thing kind of started and has been carried on in body snatcher movies that came afterward. And the way they do the test in this movie is so brilliant. I think it's mm-hmm. actually, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think it's cooler than the original because it feels more organic. I think the original is cool visually and it's kind of an exciting scene and it's cool with the blowtorch, but this feels more organic to say like, Oh, look, this thing's body is rejecting um, inorganic objects. And so, you know, we can find out if it's real or not by testing each other for inorganic objects. To me, that feels more real and it feels just more exciting to me. And and, and it's something that can carry. It doesn't have to only exist in this one test room scene. It's something that can carry on throughout the picture and come up again and again in really interesting different ways, which it does. Can I ask a question about that? Mm-hmm. So, um, can we? Maybe this is too personal. Do you think we could like? Do we know if all of us here right now would pass this test? Because I think there's too many var- variables. Like, I-, I think like does everyone have something metal in them somewhere? I do. <laughs> okay, yeah, I so do. You- I I do. Well, if fillings anyway. I, I do. Yeah. I, I have a pacemaker, so. It is not. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cardiac pacemaker. Does, does everyone else have fillings? I have my PP pierced. I think <laughs> not, not really. <laughs> <You> don't. <laughs> I, I don't think I have anything. I think I could pass the test. Well, if you don't have anything, you don't pass the, or I mean, oh, yeah, what I'm saying be, it, yeah you be could screwed. be screwed or you, could, I, have I, don't same, know. I had the same thought though, William. It's like, and they kind of go into that a little bit, but what Which if someone cool, doesn't though, have right? fillings? That's, that makes well, that's it good. better because it's, yeah, if right. it's too easy to pass and it's like, okay, this person's the thing. But <laughs> when you have that ambiguity, it's like, Okay, well, this person just has great hygiene and they've brushed their teeth really well. Mm-hmm. So bullet maybe, in the head, the end. Maybe they're not bad. <laughs> yeah, that's uh-huh. if, it, if it was McCready, you just shoot them. Yeah, and that's what's right. brilliant about it is because there is that possibility that someone just doesn't have anything wrong with their teeth, and and so you're still not absolutely certain. Which is why they sort of, as, you know, secluded them. Didn't actually, you know, it's like, okay, you stand over there, you stand over there. Yeah. Almost like now we've got to come up with another way to test or something else to do, mm-hmm. which you never quite got to that point. But well, yeah. when they do Joel Edgerton's scene with the earring, that's brilliant as well. I think that's really well done. Uh-huh. It's yeah, set up, it's it obvious coming. that it's coming. You, you see it coming, but it's still awesome. Like to right. me, it's just one of those reveals in a mystery that you're like, yeah, like as a mystery fan, I just. 
pump my fist when I see that kind of a scene. And yeah, it's like, it's cool. like the scene. It's like the scene earlier on when when the one, um, uh, the one character takes uh, the lead and says, "Here, you, you can check it out here. Go, you know, go over to that drawer." I, I kind of think, okay, well, I think yeah. I think something's coming here. I think, but but still, it it was a good scene, you know. And I think the I yeah. think the effects sort of sold it uh, a little bit. And even though you know it's coming, it still worked. Mm-hmm. And they, they they find ways to throw you off a little bit, like on the helicopter scene. You know it's coming, but they yeah. do the old switcheroo. It comes from it the other direction, right? It comes from the other direction. Like yeah. in Jurassic Park with the two velociraptors, right? <laughs> right. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Tricky girl. There's the the Sam Neil on the left and the Sam Neil on the right. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Why does it seem uh, like we're always every time I'm on the show? There's quotes from uh, Jurassic Park. I find that very fascinating, <laughs> brother. Because I don't know about these guys, but I'm pretty much obsessed with Jurassic Park. I love oh, Jurassic it's, Park it's franchise. A, it's a horror movie for me. Yeah, <laughs> we, I was talking about it with my son earlier. The book is way scarier than the movie. I still say that's the way I want to go. If they ever open a Jurassic Park, I'm going to the island <laughs> and I'm going to get crazy. eaten by a dinosaur. That's how I want to go. It would be amazing. Uh, so that's that uh, that that's that's something. It's funny because Josh got real. Uh, Josh was like, oh wow, you know, when I said mine was uh, going down on the Titanic. Like even if I knew what was going to happen, I'd, I'd probably get on the Titanic, <laughs> and that would be my choice. And I remember Josh going, oh, wow. But I'm like, yeah, at least I don't end up as dinosaur shit. <laughs> <laughs> we all end up there eventually. <laughs> dust to dust. So anyways, okay, what what else do you have? Um, in the Metroid, since we have you and William on here, talk about the sci-fi aspects to this. Because in this film, something I really appreciate is it feels, okay, let me just back up real quick. I'm rewatching Alien 1979 uh, as, as we not as we speak, but um, <laughs> today that's what I'm watching because um, because I'm going to be a guest on Ron Martin's podcast, The Resurrection of Zombie Seven. They're reviewing that, and it's been fun. And I love how scientific that film feels. It feels like it's absolutely set in a real scientific world. The way they handle it and everything in I kind of get that sense as well in this 2011 film. So could you talk about the way that the science fiction aspects are handled? Well, one thing's for sure. They, they don't, they don't make any kind of uh, excuses for what the movie is. Like it's a horror movie. It's a horror movie that has its roots in science fiction, just like John Carpenter's, just like uh, the thing from another world, which I think is a little bit more on the science fiction side. Mm-hmm. But they certainly do um, honor science fiction fans by giving the kind of typical science fiction look at things. The ship, which I mean, I got a whole thing with the ship. I, I think William nailed it. I don't want to see the inside, even though I really do. I don't want to see uh, the home world, even though I really do. But but showing the ship in the way that they did and showing that there's an alienness to it instantly takes you from horror to science fiction. It, it, you've, you've stepped out of a horror movie and into science fiction once there are that many yeah. elements of an alien nature. Now, some of the other stuff is it's science fiction-y in the sense that you've got this isolation, which I know happens in horror, but it's also a very sci-fi theme kind of mirroring the concept of space and how truly alone we are. 
And with you get that with movies like Alien, of course, and uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which uh, I revisited and was really excited about. You get this isolation in the ice and in the cold oh. and, and thousands of miles from civilization. Mm-hmm. And that is a very scientific uh, look at life in some ways to isolate something, to study it. So they're studying this thing. It's studying them. We're studying the scenario as viewers and it becomes science oriented to me. It's no longer horror when I look at it that way. Now, when you put yourself in the position, it's terrifying. So it's horror because it's frightening. But in the, uh, to the extent that there is science fiction running throughout the course of the movie, it's very clear. Um, so I, I like that. I think that, um, uh, is it Mary Elizabeth Winstead? Is that who it is? Yes. Mm hmm. Yeah. I loved seeing her in this because my pri- primarily know her from Scott Pilgrim, which is a series of uh, mm-hmm. graphic novels that I read first and then saw the movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I really, I just think she did a great job. Fun to see female centered, which has also become kind of another science fiction trope. So in horror, the users have, wow, usually have the last girl, right? And you guys talked about that many, many times on the show. Mm-hmm. Final girl. It, yeah. Right. Final girl. And you know, oftentimes it's a blonde or the blonde gets killed and the brunette lives or whatever. But in science fiction, oftentimes it's like, it's not just the final girl, but it's like the final girl who is also super competent, an officer or some kind of scientific mind, someone that survives on wits and um, strength or inner strength, not just luck of the draw. The or girl, like, the girl with the biggest heart. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I felt like you were going to say boobs there, but I think I know what you mean. <laughs> but you know, you know, that's one thing well, I really like. Hero- she's a heroine in sci-fi, right? Going back to Ripley, she's usually right. a heroine. And that's exactly what I felt this movie gave was like, you know what movie we love other than John Carpenter's The Thing? Alien. And you yes. know why we liked it? Because Ellen Ripley is a total badass. <laughs> yes. Right. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead, even though she has been the hot chick in, in other movies, she's not that in this movie. She is a scientist and she's a legitimate, she has legitimate concerns that these guys aren't taking seriously uh, because she's a, a young woman and they have dollar signs in their eyes. And it was, and so she's a, well. she's a, and she's, she's a great hero. She's not just a, you know, a victim in the, in the right. movie. She's not just a damsel in distress. She's, the one that is driving the action forward. You know, you have Joel Edgerton who looks like he's wants to be, you know, <laughs> he, he's trying to be McCready. He's like, everything yeah. about him is like McCready <laughs> light. And, yeah. and you right. expect that he's going to be the star, but really it's Kate Lloyd. It's, it's Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And I was worried coming into this because I had only seen her at this point in death proof as like the dumb cheerleader chick. And so oh, right. <laughs> I thought, Oh no, she's going to be terrible, but she was, she was excellent. And I agree. Um, William, did you have some thoughts on the whole sci-fi angle? You know, <laughs> you know, that quote, uh, is it from when Harry met Sally? Like, I'll have what she's having. I mean, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> I'll, I, I want to say what Matroid said. I mean, he, he said it perfectly. Basically it's not really set that much in a sci-fi world. Which has already been said. It's a horror movie with the basis in sci-fi. My thing would be is once you – the best part of the science fiction is th- the monster, figuring out the rules of the monster and then how to beat the monster. I mean that's great sci-fi. But it's also because you have to hunt – the monster's hunting you and you're trying to hunt it. Now we're back into horror. 
So it's I believe they are. What's the word? Uh, is it symbionts? Yeah, symbiotic. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, they harmonize the story, the plot, the characters. They're perfectly fit for each other. But when you get to the, which I already said, the spaceship. Okay, now we're getting into some sci-fi looking. I would say it's very generic for the time. Nothing interesting. Maybe a little bit of like the, I don't know if it's the core or maybe it's a, a 3D model of the of like a touch screen. I, I'm not sure. There's like little cubes that seem to be real busy. That's kind of cool, Touches. I guess. I yeah, love that. I mean, it's <laughs> cool looking. But my thing is like, unless things have meaning or are support to a meaning, it's kind of like, yeah, it's all right, I guess. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing. Yeah. If you were like, I don't care about horror. I only want sci-fi. I would say I would be very cautious seeing this movie if that's your premise. Yeah, I agree. Well, this audience won't have that premise, I doubt. But but that's a good point. And I just wanted to throw in here the sci-fi aspect that stood out to me the most is the whole um, in the beginning – uh, forgive me, I don't have the guy's name in front of me, but when, when he wants to take a, a tissue sample and, and, you know, he wants to drill down and get a, a tissue sample, that is so... Dr. Halverson. Thank you so much. That is so sci-fi at its heart because it's like, um, here we have man and women trying to explore <laughs> something that they have... N- no knowledge of and and but their you know their curiosity is getting the better of them and they're tapping into something that they shouldn't be messing with and because of the hubris and all that i mean uh, i mean who would be crazy enough to dig this thing up and bring it into their presence i mean i'm not a scientist but i would have thought hey this thing could have diseases norwegians yeah yeah i guess norwegians <laughs> But it could have diseases, first of all. I mean, like, and I know that was said in the film, but I mean, yeah, you you well, have that's that why hubris. She, I mean, it's the hubris of the man, but not of the woman. She's on top of that. She's saying, "Guys, don't be idiots." Right. You know, yeah. She dresses her down. And and here again, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's a it's a neat little. That's a sci-fi convention that we hear. You know, it happens all the time, and I love that. Yeah. Actually, you know what? Another kind of cool science fiction aspect I found in this that in thinking about it again, it kind of came to me is that you've got, uh, you know, I, I do love the we don't know what diseases this has or if it will catch our diseases or whatever. But something that was pretty cool, um, you know, it, with I don't remember if it's that scene or not, but you've got this this cast of people that are all kind of ah. You know what? Scratch this because now I'm losing it because all of a sudden my son asked me if I want to go to Taco Bell. I understand. <laughs> I had something so good, so just trust that I did. It was, it was <laughs> built on the back of William's <laughs> last comment, whatever that was. It'll come back. It'll come back to you. And while you're there, see if you can get me a chicken burrito supreme. I'd love that. Okay. Oh, I'm not, so, I'm not <laughs> okay. <Right. laughs> anyway. What? A, okay. Well, when you come back to that, just tell me. But real quick, I want to ask you guys something. So we've acknowledged that this has prequel qualities to it, prequel elements. Now, do you think there's a problem with prequels in that with a prequel, you always know how it's going to end? It has to end a certain way. Well, in this in this respect, we know how well we we know how a portion of it ends. You know, we we know where where the, where what the last scene is going to. 
to be. We know the last scene is going to be what is essentially the first scene in, you know, 82 is the thing. But it's really the journey to get there. Um, And we don't know for sure at that point that they're the last two survivors, you know? Yeah. So they could have taken it off and veered into another direction and, and, you know, still gotten to that point. So to say that we knew how it was going to end is it's, I don't know that we, we did, they could have, you know, they, there were, there were other avenues they could have taken, taken this down as opposed to just everything winding up at that last scene. But if it had ended differently than the dog running with the helicopter chasing it, we all would have been ticked. Yeah, that, no, no, no. And that had, that's how it had to end. And I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I'm just saying that it was the journey to get there. You know, and to see right. what happened and everything else and uh, that transpired before that. Yes, going into the movie, you know, okay, this is what probably the last scene of the movie is going to be. But that's pretty, that's the only thing I think you can predict. Um, and, of course, you know, some of the layout of of, of how, what they had presented in, in the original movie. Um, but it's really, okay, how did that happen? And that's what I thought was really cool about it. That they did pay some attention to that. You know, they paid attention to those details. Well, and it's weird though, because our hero here is this, is this lady, this girl. And where does, you know, you know that she's not going to be in the beginning of the 1982 thing. So it, it does take an element of suspense or something out of it. Yeah. Your questions aren't whether, Who's going to survive? It's it's going to be, how is it going to get to that point? And I guess that's how prequels shift our focus. Yeah, true, but I mean, we don't know that, we, you know, like I said, we don't know that other people didn't escape a different way. Mm-hmm. And we're heading to another camp. You know, the, that was never really, it was just, hey, they got here, nobody's alive here now. Mm-hmm. So Dave, did you have like a preconceived notion of what you wanted? Because for me... I kind of like the idea of no one does survive this thing. Like that makes McCready's sacrifice that much more important at the end where it's like him and, and Childs and they're like, uh, all right, well, no matter what, neither of us are getting out of here, basically. And if, right. if, if there's that element of someone can survive it, is it is it as interesting? I don't know. I had that same thing, though, like which is why I kind of hate prequels. We know what's coming. How on earth are you going to make us interested in the long run? It's a it's a fair yeah. question. And, well, I think I think they managed. I think they just managed to do that just because of the. I mean, it is it's brand new characters to us, you yeah. know. And, and watching those That's dynamics, true. watching those dynamics, and um, you know, like I said, by the time they got to that camp, yeah, there's nobody there. Anybody who was in that camp when they got there in eighty, you know, in the eighty two version, they're dead now. But that doesn't mean they've accounted for every person that was in that camp. So and I think makes, and still we don't know. Element. And Kate has her own separate story arc that we never would have anticipated from the original. As many clues right. as there are to everything taking place at the camp, we don't know that they go to the ship. We don't know that she burns this guy, you know, up in a in a ice snow cat. And so that's that's an interesting. And, and when that movie ends, you're like, well, "This is the end of the movie. What about the dog?" And then they pay that off in such a sublime way, but. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, we don't know. There are several characters still alive, potentially at the end of this movie, um, you know, until the final credits, basically. Right. I mean, do we even know that Kate died? <laughs> we, I, I don't remember. We, I Did don't, she die? I don't sure? think we no. do know about her no. specifically, unless we assume that the she succumbed to the elements, 
but which one would I mean, have to assume mm-hmm. i mean in, in the original well, or in john carpenter's they make this point of no one could survive out there right right uh, yeah but she she has a, she has another snowcat though doesn't she isn't there a second snowcat there it seems like there I is know, i don't remember but, because when they go when everything's the same right but when he goes back to the spaceship when they go when, when McCready finds the spaceship in 82 that snowcat's not parked next to it so that snowcat's <laughs> gone where is so she's kate took kate went somewhere and maybe there's a sequel that's coming uh, up how with far kate can you get in a snowcat out there it's not like the shining well snow i mean snow job can, can get pretty far snow job <laughs> just saying <laughs> But maybe, but maybe she goes. Maybe there is a sequel possibility that they're trying to leave open with her going back to the American camp and finding Frozen McCready and, or you know, Frozen McCready and maybe he's dead and there's the aliens still on the loose or something. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Those possibilities are still open. That's I mean, I just I had a huge idea. I think it does need to have a sequel. I think it should go to the homage or the whole kind of situation of a Thirty Days of Night situation with the next. <laughs> Closest remote, really remote, maybe not even a town, maybe not even a village. I don't know what's what's out there. I mean, I happen to dabble in film. If you guys happen to know any directors that love horror, please (laughs) let me know. I I need to hook up with them and get this going. Nice, I like it, Matt. Bring it back. Well, I had a question for you, real quick. You brought up an interesting, for me, a really interesting question about um, what were they going to do? What's the payoff? I mean, we all know what happens. We get the ending, which leads into the beginning of John Carpenter's, which I felt like it almost went too long to be an homage. And it kind of became a, a little shorter. And I think it would have been the coolest ending they could have possibly done. And then some. But I've got to wonder how many people in 2011 going to see this movie, especially maybe those going on dates and stuff like how many of them have seen the original? Because that's that's, that's you don't have point. to see the original to no. you know. And how many people knew it was tied to the original or that there is an original and by original, I'm referring to Carpenters obviously, but so exactly, in yeah. that but. way, people watching, they're rooting for this, you know, the heroine the whole time saying, I think she can make it. And then at the end, they're like, cool, she gets away. <laughs> like, right. I mean, it's, it's a completely yeah. different experience for someone that hasn't seen John Carpenters. That's a good point. Absolutely. And, and I think that, um, I mean, you're going on when this movie came out now, it was like 30 years, um, just about a little, just under yeah. 30 years from the original, you know, thing. I mean, it's almost like when, when, uh, when Psycho 2 came out, although that's a little different because that one, you're, that one, you're talking a direct sequel I love um, that movie. To, to a movie. I do too. Actually, Psycho 2 is, <laughs> I, I like I it really better than the first one. I, I can't say I like it better than the first. I'm still a Hitchcock fan. I still love the first movie, but. The second one is is just a much different, just a much different sort of movie, you know, where you're thinking, yeah. and why don't why didn't they just leave poor Norman alone and everything would have been fine? But anyway, <laughs> uh, get yeah. get back to this one. Um, and now, like you, I don't even have a kid asking about Taco Bell, and I just lost it. What the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Doc's thinking of that. Matt remembered his point. Oh, okay. I have a memory. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay. So when, uh, William, when you brought up the, like the cubes or whatever, the kind of floating apparatus, those things moving around, um, it's weird because I love that. But as you said that, I do recall feeling something. And for me, being a science fiction guy and a horror guy, but especially a science fiction guy in this case, 
it it made me feel nope made me think something and that's it was thrown in there to say this is a science fiction movie too there is no purpose no explanation which and I think we've covered this before, but I don't actually like a lot of explanation in my science fiction. Sometimes I don't end with horror. Like I don't want to know why Michael Myers is why Michael Myers is the way he is. That's why I don't like the Rob zombies. But Uh anyway, so to see that is really cool, but then to give it no meaning eliminates the science fiction aspect of it almost entirely. Science fiction is rooted in the, the mystery, but also in the plausibility. So, it's not just there for fanfare's sake, or it's not just there because, hey, look what we can do with CGI, but why might it be there? And there's nothing tying it to that other than, well, it's an alien ship. Well, yes, but is it an alien ship that gives us anything else? I mean, we really don't get enough out of that scene to warrant the use of CGI to make this thing, even though it looks cool, even though my imagination went wild with it. And then I'm thinking true science fiction, really good science fiction would have given us some reason to care about what we saw. So when you said that earlier, William, I was really thinking that's a good point. What is that thing? Why does it matter? And and is it does it detract? And in some ways, I think it does. It majorly detracts from me mostly just because it sucks. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's also it just feels like something that the studio said, spend a lot of money at this, on this ending. Yeah, and yeah, make it really I flashy. Yeah, you know? no, I hate, and I, I did not like the. I'm talking. I'm referring specifically to like the, the cubed apparatus, yeah, the no, Tetris, the, the Tetris. Yeah. Thing. Hey, good point. The actual like scene on the ship, I was. I, it's the one major detractor for me in this movie. Like, boo all the way. I was so bummed that they go back, and then it's like, I felt like I was watching The Arrival Three. Or, you know, it's like, I'm well, not that, watching, you know, that, that whole thing where it's like, well, now I'm watching a science fiction movie that was written by someone who's never written a science fiction movie that, that is that who typically writes 902 on the, on the stuff. thing is just unbearable. The thing floating around with the face, just like, I, yeah, come on. But you know what, guys, what I think this movie does so well as a prequel, which you can't say for a lot of prequels. Like when I finished watching the Phantom Menace or Attack of the Clones, I kind of am like, oh, I hate Star Wars. Or I don't want to. I don't want to be around Star Wars again for the next six months. But when I finished this, you know that that ending in the closing credits, I'm like, I want to go watch that thing right now. Like, put the thing in right now. And honestly, yeah. every time that's happened, I've I've went and watched the thing afterward because it's like it's so exciting. It gets you pumped up based on that the way it ends for me you know if if you are a fan of the original and a lot of that is because it's faithful in tone at least to to the original you know and and, and it's giving you um the same thing it's it's mixing it up enough to make it interesting but giving you still the same thing i mean the prequels in star wars i mean you know there's no han solo you know we don't have there's no there's no fun everybody talks like they're in church <laughs> you know, like, like, like everybody in those movies talks. Everything is so serious and so, you know, they tried with Jar Jar Binks. He was an epic failure. And then Lucas said, "Well, I guess they don't want humor. No, we want good humor. We want, you know, you, 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 and and then and then that this that just opened the door for Lucas's, you know, horrific dialogue. You know, in the first one, Han Solo can say, "Laugh it up, fuzzball." And it'll kind of work because of the way, you know, because it's Harrison Ford and the way he's delivering it. In this one, the whole, yeah. you are the chosen one. You know, it just, oh, God, it, it, it literally was like you're watching somebody who takes their own mythology way too seriously. And it, it just, I, 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 
when I sit down with my kids, they love the prequels because that's what they grew up with. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up with the originals. They grew up with the prequels. And every time we'll watch a movie, they'll say, let's watch the Star Wars movies. I said, OK, well, we're going to watch them in order they were made. They insist on watching them in chronological one, two, three. And I can't get through one and two. I just can't do it. I can't, I bring yeah. myself. I, I just hope they forget it. And I, I never bring it up again. I you should yeah, never I, have shown them the movies. That. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, Shame that's on you, Dave. That's the way he does it. He doesn't want to show his kids the. Uh, My kids pre- don't know those exist. <laughs> I can't say that's the wrong thing to do. Okay. As a massive Star Wars fan, but it feels love- a little bit wrong. It does. What? No, it- How? Uh, what? Why should they see those movies, Jason? What? Just because why should they ever? See- just because Josh, of you- the joy that you know it would bring your children. <laughs> that's why. Didn't you say earlier you wanted more? Didn't you say earlier you wanted more? Like Star a Wars thousand fans, souls fun. cried out in silence. <laughs> oh, <sir>. Right. <laughs> it, it's the same. It's the same reason that we feed our kids candy. Like we know it's terrible for them, but it I gives them really joy in the moment. The candy tastes them. like I sand. Them- it's kind I grew of up like on a sand planet. The occasional treat or reward. I don't feed it to them with a spoon. Well, I, I feed it. They can have. They can find it on their own when they're teenagers, but they're right. not going to find it under my house. And then that's right. Josh will have the Josh will talk the birds and the bees with him, but they can find Star Wars on the street. <laughs> the this on the is street. the thing. This is this is the beauty this of is it the is thing. that We're they they Doctor Shock. Good good oh, win. Dang it. Um, Go ahead, Josh. I'm just saying that. I will nurture such an appreciation for the original trilogy that they won't want that candy when they're old enough to see it. Okay. <laughs> about kale and broccoli because it's delicious and good for you. And I'm the feeding candy them good disgusting. taste. I'm feeding them like fine French cuisine. Yeah, the problem with kids they don't is want ta- they don't want Taco Bell. And I'm I'm hey, sorry. Sometimes you need a steak quesadilla. I'm, I'm sorry to <laughs> a dang quesadilla. I'm sorry for all the listeners out there who do not have children and they're not appreciating this conversation. But um, the problem with kids, you guys, is sometimes when you're you start a sentence that way. The, the, the problem with kids is sometimes the things that you want to teach them the most, they go the opposite direction anyway, sometimes in spite of us. So I just hope I hope it doesn't backfire for all of us. I, I totally agree. Well, That's you got to be I more totally, manipulative. Okay. I totally ignore my kids, so yeah, it's gonna work out great. <laughs> there you go. So hey, can I ask a question related to the movies you're talking about? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, have any what of movie? you watched? Uh, I think we're talking about Star Wars One. <laughs> no. <we're not. laughs> have any of you watched Carpenter's Thing um, directly after the thing? Josh, you were mentioning every that. Time, I, every I'm time I've watched 2011. It'd be so wow. cool to watch it seamlessly. Like if you had a stream or if you kind of could cut it onto a disc or whatever. I mean, I know that that's not always, you know, given the thumbs up, but I would love to watch it fairly seamlessly. And, you know, the, the nerd in me, the guy that sees things in my head that will never come to fruition, almost wishes you could paint some kind of filter or like some kind of post-production <laughs> over the 2011 to make it look a little bit more like the Carpenter version. And then really it's exactly the same. I, I, I did a scene by scene comparison, like a shot by shot comparison. It's pretty only stellar. the shots. Only the shots of the guy in the helicopter are different at all. The, the shots of the dogs. Um, I'm almost sure they actually reuse the original shots because they're so wow. exactly the same. Right. It and I that mean, feeling. like movie to movie. So, yeah, the, the book matching of those of the uh, outro and intro or however you want to put it is beautiful like that was i actually felt that feeling like when you like when okay 
sorry to tie back to this, but when I saw the Force Awakens trailer, like that excitement, <laughs> the, the goosebumps, like I'm almost tearing up. I got that similar feeling when I was watching the end of 2011, The Thing, because you watch this thing unfold, and a stupid pun, you watch this scene unfold, and it you know what it means. And it, it was so beautiful in Carpenters that I for me, I was just like, this is so awesome. I want more. And, right. you know, you get more. So I just didn't know if anyone had watched it seamlessly or if they'd watch it immediately after. Like, you hop up, you go to the bathroom, you grab your popcorn, you put it in the next movie. And I kind of want to do that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, Matt, you should sponsor a little screening like that. Invite us all over. Dr. Shock will fly out here. Absolutely. And, and we'll all watch it together like that. I would love it. <laughs> we that watch movies awesome. on my uh, garage in the summertime. We have a projector. So we, we play old school, like 8-bit and 16-bit Nintendo. And then we, uh, which is a lot of fun. So we play the good stuff, right? right. Side scrolling. And uh, a lot of Metroid. <laughs> but <laughs> then, then what we do also is we watch movies together. And that's something that would be a lot of fun would be to get together as a group and watch some of these things. So oh, Doc Shock, in the summer, ever... no, in the I'm... winter. Oh, oh yes. it gets here, Josh. So but true. That's Dave. Good. If you ever stumble out, Salt Lake. <laughs> yeah. If I, if I ever make my way that. out there, that'd be yeah. perfect. That would be yeah. You've awesome. got somewhere to stay at my place. Awesome. When, when are you doing this? And tomorrow. Oh, I can't go. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll invite. And we'll invite the listeners too. Everybody that's listening. Yeah, to this we'll podcast. have a listener meet up for anybody. Come anybody to anybody who can make it to uh, Matt oh, Do it during I'll the Sunday Film late. Festival 2016. I can show yeah. up late. How long is this movie? Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can make a Taco Bell run in the middle and bring us all food and, and then catch Carpenters. Yes, remember, God. Chicken Burrito Supreme. Okay. <laughs> well, a, as we start to wrap this one up here, I want to say um, Roger Ebert, whom I love, the late, great Roger Ebert. A lot of people diss him. They think that he didn't get horror. I argue that in many instances he did get horror. And he only gave this, he appreciated this film, okay? But he gave it two and a half stars, okay? And this is what he said. This is ultimately his reason for that. Quote, The more you see of a monster, the less you get. It is the unseen, the imagined, that scares you. This version of the thing provides such graphic and detailed views of the creature that we are essentially reduced to looking at special effects and being aware that we are. Think how little you ever really saw in the first Alien movie and how frightening it was. Unquote. And I, I really, I agree with him. what this guy says. Well, okay, let me just, <laughs> I'm going to fight you. Just throwing out there, I'm a, big, I'm a big Roger Ebert fan too. But here's the first line from his two-and-a-half-star review of 1982's The Thing. The Thing is a great barf bag movie. Mm-hmm. All right, but is it any good? So he gave that the original two-and-a-half stars as well. Yeah. But he has laid, He came to appreciate it later. I think everybody yeah. did. Yeah, I mean, uh, when, yes. when that first yes, came out... Well, when the movie first came out, it was you know against ET and and you know we know the whole that whole thing. It just that uh, it it didn't it didn't have it didn't find an audience. It didn't you know it was it was it was considered it almost ruined John Carpenter's career, which is absolutely amazing when you think of it now because it's such an awesome movie. Um, but it almost ruined his career, and in a, in some ways, I guess it did sort of ruin his career. Um, but I don't know how anybody could have watched the movie. 
Like I don't, I don't, I don't know how you you could have seen it, seen the movie, and had a, had that type of reaction to it. Doctor yeah, Shock. I can understand. Here's another away from the movie. <laughs> Here's another lame line from Ebert's review of the '82 thing. He says, "He says Carpenter says he likes his movies to create emotions in his audiences, and I guess I'd rather see us jump six inches than get involved in the personalities of his characters." These are like the best characterizations, and uh, <laughs> like he just he gets the whole movie wrong. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. You guys are messing with the wrong marine here. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna out. Roger Ebert, you guys, right now with my Roger Ebert Kung Fu. Since we're quoting from Roger Ebert reviews, in his review, or at least his reference of the 1951 The Thing from Another World, he said, quote, I saw the 1951 film with my mother in a movie theater in West Point, New York, where we were attending my cousin's graduation from the military academy. It was the most terrifying experience I have ever had in a movie theater. <laughs> Isn't that That's great? Because he went with his mom. I know he was young. <laughs> he, he was really young, but I I thought that was endearing. Yeah, and I have I I'm a big Roger Ebert fan too. I've got all of his books, all of his great movie. But, you know, I, I I write him religiously. I, I I'm a fan, but I'm one of the ones who thinks he definitely had some issues, at least when it came to to horror. You know, I mean the the yeah. the the <laughs> such the 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 way they reacted to like every slasher film um with the exception the, of maybe uh with the exception of halloween, he loved halloween. halloween. Mm-hmm. yes and that was what he'd always throw up though when they would when people would attack him about horror hey i liked halloween right mm-hmm. like anyone you know? can like one song from it from like everyone likes one reggae song right. very few people like <laughs> all reggae right <laughs> good comparison that's true um but yeah, I I think that for some reason, I mean, to to, to not to have avoided the movie because of ET and all, and oh, this is a this is sort of an evil aliens movie. Okay, I could see that. But to have seen the movie and to have reacted negatively, I I just can't understand that because mm-hmm. it's such a it's such an incredible film. Well, uh, and Doc, did you? Oh, sorry, Jason. Oh, I was just gonna say we we all have the benefit of hindsight and having all these years of it being a classic. So I, it, well, it definitely yes, colors our vision. The first, the first time I saw it, I, I loved it. I mean, I was going to ask Dave, you know, did you see it in theaters? Cause I know you're I a little older than I am. Yeah. And I, I would have been I, too young. I didn't see it in theaters because when this came out, what was I, I was 12. So, okay, I, so. I did not get a chance to see it in <laughs> theaters, but I was one of the lucky, I mean, we had cable and I, you know, I've said this before on other podcasts, but I was lucky in that my parents only seemed to recognize that comedy and drama existed. <laughs> so if it yeah. was an R, if it was Caddyshack or an officer and a gentleman, oh, that's a movie that you can't see that. I said, okay, well, I'm going to go in here and watch Excalibur. Oh, you go watch your sword movie. That's fine. <laughs> they, they didn't seem to recognize that there were other genres outside of comedy and, and drama. That was what they sort of steered me away from. That was where the, the parenting came in. And they never bothered to see why Excalibur was rated R or why The Shining, why that wouldn't be a movie I could watch. So I still got a chance to see a lot of those kind of movies. See, Josh, Dave is a disturbing example of what we were talking about earlier. Our best intentions. Yeah, because look at at the movies he watches now. (laughs) Our best intentions Uh, (laughs) run amok (laughs) sometimes. Yeah, right. I'm just kidding. The thing that drives me nuts about that Ebert review, though, I mean, for me, the thing that bothers me most is that 
he makes a good kind of an astute point when he says less is more. I know I'm paraphrasing, but less is more in alien. They proved that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you see the whole alien maybe once or twice and for brief seconds. And it wasn't until aliens that we had some kind of idea of what we were looking at. But the flip side of that is that sometimes you've got to see enough to make the movie work, right? right. So something that drives me crazy about that is that in aliens, we see them all the time and the queen we see in full. And yet that is a super effective uh, bad guy for, for lack of a better word. I mean, it's really good, like really yeah. good. And, and in the thing, can you imagine that movie without the gore, without the, without the stuff happening? I mean, to me, it's not the same movie. It's not a barf bag movie. What we're getting is something that is visceral and attacking us in a great way. And with the 2011 version, it doesn't quite pay off that well. Uh, less may have been more in that case, especially when you round a, come around to the, the flying saucer. But statements like less is more, it's not fair because it's not always accurate. And horror has proven time and again that while less can be more, sometimes what you want is like an all-out assault, which is so much that it drives you crazy. It's like almost too difficult to accept, like in the case of aliens where you're constantly bombarded by them. And Michael Myers is a good, a good example of when less is more. The less we know, the better. Right. In my opinion, right? That's why Halloween one and two are so. Effective. I agree. So the line, you're right. You're absolutely right. Because the line that that Doctor Loomis delivers is, "I looked in his eyes and I saw pure evil." Well, it's kind of hard to still think of seeing pure evil if you know that this kid grew up with, you know, in in a white trash house with, with these these, mm-hmm. these sort of in the environment he grew right. up it in. It humanizes sort of him in a way we don't it. want. Yes, and I and I do happen to like the. the and he had a white pony Halloween. in the backyard. Yeah. Oh, don't yeah, start on the white pony, <laughs> please. No, God, please. Um, Just but, yeah, messing. And, it's interesting. I'm looking here at, at the, another thing that Ebert mentioned in his review of the original one is he talks about it. What problem had it was plausibility that he knows that you know that the, these people know that um, the the thing is out there and it could it could ingest them and copy them. Uh, and he says the obvious defense against this problem is is a buddy buddy system. But time and time again, Carpenter allows his characters to wander off alone and come back with silly grins on their faces until we've lost count of who may have been infected and who hasn't. That takes the fun away. These characters are not the type you could tell right away they don't like each other. They're not going to buddy up because one might think the other one is the thing and he's going to be alone with them. <laughs> you know, I, that I that, well, yeah, I, that just that see that's like a misunderstanding of 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 a basic concept of the movie. And, and in that, horror. That, that these that these that nobody trusted anybody. How are you going to say you buddy up with him? Nobody trusted anybody. Yeah, and in horror, it's like a a one by one, you know, situation where characters are picked off. That's right. So, anyways, we can one of these days we'll have to have a whole big special where we debate Robert Roger Ebert. I'm sure nobody will listen to it, but but <laughs> I think it would be fun one of these days. But let's start wrapping this up because I don't want to go too long. Um, Let's move into our final thoughts and ratings on the 2011 The Thing, and we'll start with Matroid. Okay, sorry, I'm just uh, setting down a, a cold soda. It may have made some sound there. Um, you know, this movie for me, Dave nailed it when he said that it, he was really pleasantly surprised. I anticipated nothing that I would enjoy. I thought, okay, this is going to be... 
I how do I put this? I don't mind remakes. I thought the Fright Night remake was actually really good. I don't mind remakes when they're done well. I don't mind when they are uh, cared for by loving hands by people that that loved the the predecessor. And I I was worried that with this, all I was going to get was a remake. And by the way, why they're both called the thing is kind of stupid to me. I'm sorry, I, just, I hate <laughs> that. Anyway, um, what I felt like I was going to get, and what I was very nervous about getting, was something that was um, a 2011 version of John Carpenter's The Thing, which is like, um, you know, who's going to fall in love, and how are they going to get along when one of them's a vampire? Whatever. I was, I was so nervous that it was going to be terrible. They should so have called it the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, it's very good, actually, because it's the uh, same that's thing. That's probably your best joke you've ever told. <laughs> that might be the best one I've heard. You didn't even laugh, Josh. Damn it. Well, I was on mute. Okay. But I was laughing in my heart. All right. Sorry, <laughs> Matt. Sorry. That's all right. So anyway, you know, I, I say that the movie was halfway through. I was like, okay, I, I'm super surprised and extremely excited at this movie. And then came about the airplane space airplane, the uh, flying saucer scene, which really pulled me out of the movie, made it less interesting, made me upset that they'd gone that far, that they had uh, modern dayed the whole thing by not giving the audience credit by letting them figure things out or giving them just enough to be excited and let their imaginations run wild. So I felt like I was on the way to like a solid eight and a half to a nine. And what I ended up with was a six and a half, which was redeemed by the ending which in the credits too, awesome. And the fact that I, I really enjoyed the performances, the setting, the tone, the fact that they clearly wanted to make this an homage. So 6.5. And I say, if you like the thing and you own the thing, John Carpenter's, you've got to get this one too. I do think it's a buy because of the things we've talked about tonight. Now, if you don't own John Carpenter's, what's wrong with you? And, <laughs> uh, and you probably could rent this, but I think everyone's got to at least see it. Yeah, so you're saying 6.5 and buy it? That is correct. Okay. All right, guys. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> Sorry. No, my rating for the same thing here you is... You should have stopped. I'm <laughs> no, calling this the same thing from now on. So from 2011, it's a 7.5 to me. It's a strong rental. The only reason I'm docking it is because, number one... The CGI bugs me, and maybe it's not all CGI. Apparently, most seventy-five percent of it is practical, but the effects—it's just too over the top with the monster. It 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 seems like a different monster at times than what we saw in the eighty-two version, and that kind of bugs me. But I respect the film. I think it's very well done. I think it's enjoyable. But I also think they basically did the exact same thing as they did in nineteen eighty-two. And so for that, I take it down a couple points, but still 7.5 strong rental. I call it a must see. What do you say, Dr. Shock? I'm going to, um, you know, I, I, I was starting like it around an, an eight or 8.5 as well. I did bring it down a little bit for yes, the ending and a little bit for the CGI too. Um, with, with some of the scenes with the money, like the one with the, with the whipping tentacle, um, yeah, that was, uh, it just wasn't, wasn't, it didn't work as well for me, but then I had to kick it up another point because it had Mr. Echo, my favorite character from lost in it. So I'm yeah, coming he's awesome. in. Yeah. I, I, I was, that was one of the most depressing episodes of lost for me was when Mr. Echo is his last episode there. But anyway, um, I'm going to give it a seven 
and it is a strong. I, you know what? And I, I, I'll go with Metroid. I think if if you do own John Carpenter's The Thing, then this is worth owning too, because there will come a time when you'll want to watch one and then the other right after it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's if 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 you do have the first, and I'm sure many people do, this one is worth picking up as well. Nice. Okay. Thank you. What do you say, William? Sing and don't worry about a thing. Because <laughs> nice. every little thing <laughs> is going to be all right. Oh, we're hilarious tonight. <laughs> Woo, I love reggae. I, I know one reggae song. <laughs> um, well done. You know, I started humming that ever since I heard uh, Metroid bring up reggae because it keeps me in a little bit better mood, less negative. So I think that uh, I really like the Kate character, the Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character. I think her element to this movie as a story, as the plot, and how it intermixes with the men, I think that's my favorite part of this movie for me because it's so new and it changes it up a little bit. Um, and I do think that Wolfman said it best. I, I, I don't really know why he said this out loud. I think it's... I don't, I'm really surprised, but I think the ending is the best part also for two reasons, because it's over and I don't have to watch it anymore. <laughs> and second, because it is leading into the movie I love deeply. And I, now I'm like, oh, good. I can get this bad taste out of my mouth and watch a real movie. So everything I like about this movie, which are, are good things, are everything that I love about John Carpenter's. And because of that, I don't really see why... I need to see this. Um, I did see it in theaters because I, I love John Carpenter's thing, so it got me in the theater. Um, the only reason I saw it again was because of you guys in this podcast, so thanks thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> and yes. let's see. Uh, uh, Josh said that I came up with some random sayings about what I recommend. Uh, as far as the number goes, I did have it at a four when I wrote it down before we started, but I just want you guys to know that hearing you all talk and your passion and defending something that I didn't enjoy at all, I, I just I, – I totally saw where you guys were coming from and I had to bump it up a whole point and a half. So I give it a five and a half and what I'll be doing in the future just so you know is um, I'm going to go into any store I'm in and I'm going to take this movie and hide it um, <laughs> so that no one can find it and I'm going to put John Carpenter's like – in every other genre of movie, like up front, and in, in, in every genre of the of the store, <laughs> I've done that. I've actually done that before. That's really probably wrong, but what? <laughs> not with the thing. I've done You've that. Really with, done that? I've done it with a different movie. Yeah, I mean, if people aren't going to listen on this Orkies. podcast, then I'll then hide. You, it. Then you're going to make them listen. I'll hide it under the shelf. <laughs> Damn it! That's like high school Josh stuff. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> well, then I'm on High the right track. I worked at the video store. I'm on the right track, <laughs> right, Josh? So, William, is that 5.5? Is that a rental then? Um, no, I avoided this movie until now, so I'm going to keep avoiding it. Okay. But that's just my Avoid. Opinion. Okay. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Okay, Wolfman, bring it home. So, William and I saw this in the theater together, and when we walked out, he was having such a good time. He had, he had really enjoyed his experience, and... Um, he and I started recording a podcast together soon afterward. And one of the movies we covered was we did a, we did a double feature of the thing 1982 and this thing 2011. And uh, we got in such a big fight over 
this movie that, that we just stopped doing the podcast after that episode. (laughs) (laughs) What a divisive thing. And so, uh, probably you can tell from his review where he was coming from. Um, (laughs) I hold the 1982 thing in such reverence that I, again, was not looking forward to this remake. Uh, I, the first moment I heard about it, I was annoyed and I was just so pleasantly surprised. And I just couldn't believe that it wasn't terrible, that that was enough to carry me through buying the Blu-ray. But even now having owned the Blu-ray and revisiting it several times, I think the movie pretty much holds up. And, and I, you know, if I take into account the final spaceship scene, it, it drops it down a lot, but because that's such a tiny portion of the film for me, I can kind of put that out of my mind and enjoy this for the rest of it. And I just love all those missing puzzle pieces coming together for a film that I love to be able to get just a little more taste of that. And I love all these Norwegian actors as I kind of fumbled through telling you guys at the beginning, I'd love every one of these guys. And I think they're great in this movie. There's a guy from uh, rare exports and the guy from that stupid Avalanche movie. I can never remember the name of right? Force Majeure. Force Majeure. So it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just fun seeing these guys. And, um, I don't know. I, I love the cast. I love the sh- way it's shot. Even though the score isn't as good, it's still a pretty decent modern score, and they pay enough homage to Carpenter's work that I, I enjoy that. And um, so for me, the CGI basically, majorly at the end of the spaceship, but also some of the stuff within the compound knock it down for me two points. I give this an eight. It's a buy it still for me if you love the original. Okay. Thank you. Eight and buy it. So that concludes our review of The Thing from 2011. Before we close out the show, I want to give you one little teaser here. I'm really happy to report that on next Friday's episode, we're going to be bringing you epic reviews of the original Poltergeist from 1982 and the remake from 2015. And we will have Dr. Walking Dead himself, Kyle Bishop, He will be with us for those reviews. Really happy about that. So make sure you join us next Friday. So if you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe so you don't miss that episode. You will definitely want to hear that one. If you enjoyed these reviews tonight of the Thing movies, then you're going to love the Poltergeist reviews as well. Well, we're going to be wrapping up this episode, but I hope you've enjoyed it, especially our special guests who have sci-fi expertise I love having them on Horror Movie Podcast because uh, they're so talented. So, uh, Matroid and William, please tell us where the listeners can hear more of your excellent podcasting efforts. William, how about you go first, man? Okay. I'm going to do the real simple, probably the way I'm going to do this in the future. So, this is what I would love the listeners to do. Go to HorrorMoviePodcast.com. You probably have already been there. So go there, and on the right sidebar, you will see the Movie Podcast Network. You might have to scroll down a little bit, but it's there. You'll see it. And you'll see little icons for Movie Streamcast, Movie Podcast Weekly, and the Sci-Fi Podcast. Please, if you have the time or because of your love for this podcast and for the network, go to those websites and like them and subscribe to them. And it will benefit us all and keep us going. It helps support what we're trying to do and bring you as much content as we can. And thank you. Enjoy. Thank you. Matt? Uh, That was very well said. 
William. And <laughs> I mean, honestly, that was pretty awesome. Yes. And it's it's a good maybe point you should have gone first. <laughs> maybe you should watch your mouth. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, really, it was it was good. And and honestly, I'm not going to follow up with anything better than that. I do want to make sure that everybody continues to listen to the show, and I'm sure everyone will, but it quickly became my favorite podcast of all time, I might add, and I'm not trying to kiss butt here. It genuinely is. Um, Everybody's got what they contribute is is so valuable and so interesting for me that I want to make sure everybody else gets that chance too. Likewise, the Sci-Fi Podcast, which you can find at www.thescifipodcast.com, is also filled with fun, vibrant people, such as my wife, myself, Wolfman, and William. Uh, I think on this is Kill William Kill, is that right? Kill Bill Kill? Mm-hmm. Well, he's uh, William Solo Jr. on the Sci-Fi Podcast. Anyway, um, you can find us there. We, we love that show we like being able to interact with people on the boards um and it's it's pretty important to me that you visit because i want to make sure that we can do it for a long time and the more people that listen the more more uh i want to do it and then you can also read some of my articles at uh heraldextra.com slash entertainment i'm under the name gary the unicorn i write about a lot of things lately it's been american idol and thank goodness tonight is the last time i have to do that maybe forever although i'll probably cover next year (laughs) but i write about movies funny scenarios interesting things and uh actually i'm bringing this podcast up in tomorrow's article so that's where you can get me and uh jason thank you very much for having me on again i hope you know how much i appreciate it and enjoy it um i love being on with doc he's awesome and uh, we had Willis Wheeler on our last show, and it was so fun because I was first introduced to him on the Horror Movie Podcast. <laughs> and he's just, he's one of my favorites. But we're going to have you guys on our show. We've got Alien Show coming up before too long, and I want you there uh, to back up Station on Alien Resurrection so that William and I can laugh at you all the live long day. <laughs> I, I will back her up. I've got her back on Alien Resurrection. Thank you. I can't wait for that. And as we conclude here, I just want to invite all the listeners to please submit more of your lesser-known horror gems to us for another At Your Mercy Listener Picks episode, just like we did a couple episodes ago. Seriously, that was a blast. So if you have things that you want to send to us and let us know about movies you want us to check out, by all means, send them our way. You can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com, and that's the best way to send us your at-your-mercy picks. Also, I want to make sure everybody knows that Dr. Shock finally has a Facebook page, and I'm really excited about that. I'm going to have it linked in the show notes for episode 54 here. Make sure you go check out Dr. Shock's Facebook page because it's great. He's put it off for a long time, and now he's finally going for it, so we're excited. You can also find him at his website, which is dvdinfatuation.com, where he reviews a movie a day, every single day, until he reaches 2,500 movies, and I predict that he'll just keep on trucking once he hits that number, because he's a madman. Also, follow Doc on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. And you can follow The Wolfman on Twitter, at Icarus Arts. And you can also hear him on his excellent podcast. It's called Movie Streamcast. They're little like 10 to 20 minute episodes where they review films of all genres that are streaming currently. 
and it's an exceptional show. I love that show, and of course, as was mentioned, Wolfman is also on the Sci-Fi Podcast, and occasionally he visits his old show, Movie Podcast Weekly, which is my other baby. Movie Podcast Weekly is a show where we review new movies that are in theaters every Wednesday. And these cover all genres as well. So make sure you check us out at moviepodcastweekly.com. Thank you. And we love your comments. So get involved in the horror movie podcast community. Keep them coming. You can leave a comment in the show notes or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And you can call and leave a voicemail at 801-382-8789. Also, you can find all of our past episodes, including the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis at our website at horrormoviepodcast.com and i want to tell people by the way those who have left voicemails recently we're going to be having a voicemail filled episode here pretty soon because we got so many voicemails of late and i love them they're really good too like seriously you guys have been doing a great job at that so please keep those coming Um, Don't worry. You call and leave a voicemail. We'll get it on the show. And I know that we've got a couple voicemails from like a while back that we're still going to get in the rotation, but I will. Um, And that number is 801-382-8789. I also want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for a horror movie podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com and we'll have that linked in the show notes. And remember that you can subscribe free and iTunes and follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. And I think that's it. So on behalf of our good friends Matroid and Kill Bill Kill, and also on behalf of my good friends Dr. Shock and Wolfman Josh, we thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jay of the Dead. And you can join us again next Friday for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. <laughs>